Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Hello, Old Sports. Dan here. You are about to hear episode two of our 2023 In Memoriam special. We've got a lot of great content here and, of course, some wonderful guests. Hope you all enjoy. And next, uh, we are going to move on to uh, football and to uh, Dave Wilcox, who was born in 1942 and died on April 19th, a Hall of Fame linebacker with the San Francisco 49ers. Wilcox played his entire 11-year career with the team. Wilcox started on 49ers teams that won three consecutive division titles from 1970 to 1972, but lost in the playoffs to the Dallas Cowboys each time. He was named to seven Pro Bowls and four All-Pro teams. The 49ers, in a lot of ways, uh, you get the sense that 49ers history began in 1981 with the catch. And there's something to that, that there were there were not a lot of great 49er moments prior to that. Certainly not in the TV Super Bowl era, but these early 70s 49er teams were kind of like a low key good team. They they made the playoffs a bunch of years. I think they lost to Dallas, what, three straight years and two of them were in the championship game, something like that. They did. It's 70 and 71. They lost both times to Dallas in the camp conference championship game. And then uh, 72, they lost to them in the divisional round, but close games in 72, the last of three years, it's uh it's 30 to 28. And in fact, the 49ers are ahead 28, 13 in the fourth quarter. And Dallas has to come back and score uh, two touchdowns and a field goal to win the game 30 to 28. And then in, 1970 they they damn near go to the Super Bowl against the um that would have been against the Baltimore Colts Super Bowl 5 uh 17 to 10 is the final score of that game now that one's a little different and I don't have the times here but the oh I guess it's it's, it's in the third quarter so they would have had a whole quarter they're they're down 17 to 3 that game then they score 17 to 10 uh, and then the whole fourth quarter is scoreless. And I have to admit, I don't know the rest of the story about about that whole game. But Wilcox is, I believe he's the only Hall of Famer from that team, at, from that 49er, at least from the defense. And so he's kind of kind of the leader. They they say he's the he's nicknamed the outsider, which is fitting because he's also somebody who um, is seen as uh, pioneering the the outside linebacker position in professional football misses only one game in 11 seasons. He's very durable, has to wait a while to make it into the, the hall of fame. He's um, class of 2000. Yeah. He retires. His last season is 1974. He doesn't make it until 2000. So it does take him a while, but a, a really, really, really good player. And I should mention also that he's not the only hall of famer. Um, Defensive back by the name of Jimmy Johnson, not the the future Cowboy coach, but a a longtime cornerback who actually plays with the 49ers from 61 all the way to 76. He's he's also in the Hall of Fame, but he and Wilcox are kind of the leaders of this great 
49er team of the early 70s that you, you don't hear a lot about. Now, kind of a forgotten um, team. You know, it's it, kind of in that era. It's like if it wasn't the Super Bowl or the handful of teams that we associate with the 70s, you just don't see many highlights. So this 49ers team even though they, you know, had some good teams in the late 60s, early 70s, you just there's not much out there that you see. He, he's also, in addition to being nicknamed the outsider, he's also nicknamed the intimidator. Uh, he's known for his ability to uh, to disrupt plays. His Hall of Fame biography says that he was uh, particularly tough on tight ends. He says, what I do best is not let people block me. I just hate to be blocked. Uh, and it also says that... um Following each season's uh, 49ers coaching staff would rate their players based upon their performance. Typical score for a linebacker was about 750 in 1973. Wilcox nearly doubles that he gets a uh, 1306, 1306. So a, a not well-known player, but really sort of uh, one of the early 49er greats of the early 1970s. Yeah. And as I look here real quick at, you know, I'm looking at the 49ers Hall of Fame and there's, you know, a few guys from those teams, but for the most part, it's the 80s and on. So he's he's not the earliest one. They have a couple of guys, John Henry Johnson from the early 50s and John Brody who in 57, Y.A. Tittle, but, you know, certainly not too many earlier than him. All right, moving right along. Uh, Andrew, do you want to tell us about our next honoree? Sure. Dick Grote, born in 1930, passed away on April 27th. Grote was an eight-time All-Star at shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates and St. Louis Cardinals and won world championships with both teams. His best year was in 1960, where he led the National League in batting with a 325 average and was named MVP of the league. The Pirates won the World Series that same year. We are glad to have with us yet another one of our Sports History Network colleagues, Harv Aronson, who is the host of Total Sports Recall on the Sports History Network. Harv, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, glad you could make it. Well, good morning, gentlemen, and uh, thanks for having me on. And uh, Dick Crote uh, rings a bell with me because he happens to be from my hometown where I grew up, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Very nice, very nice. And we can see the uh, the terrible towel uh, over your head in the uh, in, the, in yeah. the room that you're recording in. Uh, we'll give you a few minutes to talk about your podcast afterwards. Sure. Not to not to spoil anything, but uh, a lot of Harv's podcast focused on things in the Pittsburgh area. Um, so uh, he's a perfect person to have on with us here today. So uh, give us sort of uh, your first uh, first thoughts on Dick Grote. Well, you know, the, the cool thing about Dick Grote was he was born in an area of Pittsburgh. It's called Swissvale. Um, so he's a natural Pittsburgher and then ended up playing for the his hometown team. And uh, with his death this past year, he was still living in Pittsburgh. So he's a Pittsburgh through and Pittsburgher through and through. Um, and of course, you know, he was part of that 1960 World Championship team of the Pirates, which was so magical because of way how it ended and Bill Mazeroski's walk off home run um, in the World Series to win it for Pittsburgh. And I found out yesterday and I pretty much knew it anyway, but Joe Carter also did the same thing for the Toronto Blue Jays one year. And those are the only two guys ever to hit walk off home runs to win a World Series. And Dick Rote was a big part of that. 
He was. In fact, he was the MVP that year in the National League. And this was a time I think it's worth noting. Let me just sort of list um, kind of starting maybe in about the, the mid 50s. Um, Campanella, Mays, Campanella again, you know, Aaron Banks a couple of times. After that, you got Robinson and Koufax. And so this was a time where there was a lot of competition to be MVP in the National League. And so to win that year on such a strong field with all these all-time greats, it's it's really something impressive. Uh, he was quite the athlete. And for those who may not be aware, he was not just a baseball player. Uh, Dick Grote was an absolutely outstanding basketball player as well. He played for Duke University uh, from 1949 through 1952, 1952, and he was actually drafted into the NBA by the Fort Wayne Pistons, who now, of course, are Detroit Pistons. But he played two seasons for them um, as a point guard. So he was an all-around great athlete, a professional baseball player, and a professional basketball player. Yeah, and uh, I see here that he – he had played with the Pistons, and then when he enlisted in uh, in the Army, you know, kind of it was as Korea was ramping up, and he was obviously, I guess he felt like it's going to happen one way or another. I may as well enlist now and, and get my service over. And when he was discharged, Branch Rickey basically told him, no more basketball. The quote I see here is, Mr. Rickey said, you've played your last game in the NBA. I never would have given up basketball, but I would have lost the rest of my bonus. Ricky played hardball. So, you know. Branch Rickey, that we talk a lot about him, obviously, is the innovator and, and Jackie Robinson, but that's Branch Rickey, the uh, the hard ass negotiator, I guess you could say. Well, and I yeah. think the other thing there, too, was that and I think I in his uh, in Grote's Saber bio, I was reading a little bit about this and there was another player around the same time named Gene Conley, who was a pitcher for the Milwaukee Braves and then also a uh a star or not, I shouldn't say a star, but a player on the red Auerbach Celtics. And one of the things that Ricky said was you can't really do this as a position player, as a pitcher, you kind of, you pitch every four or five days, you set your own schedule, but it's not, it's not the same thing as a guy who's trying to be an everyday shortstop. So that's sort of maybe what convinces Grote that he needs to devote his energies completely to baseball. And in retrospect, it's probably a good thing he did because like you said, Harvey, he's one of the leaders of this, uh, Andrew and I as Yankee fans do maybe not necessarily agree, but one of these sort of great stories in baseball history, this underdog Pirates team that that shocks the Yankees in that 60 World Series. And on my show yesterday, I had a guest and we were talking about that 60 World Series and how the Yankees were heavy, heavy favorites. And if you look back at the box scores of that series and every game the Yankees won, they just slaughtered the Pirates. I mean, they pounded them, but in every game they lost, it was much closer so um, my my guest yesterday was pointing out that Mickey Mantle always said that that was one of the most disappointing uh, points of his entire career was losing that World Series. Mantle said it was the only World Series he ever played in. And, and Mantle played in a lot of World Series from 1951 to 1964. But Mantle said that was the only World Series he ever played in where he thought that the best team got beat. Well, it was they, good for Pittsburgh anyway. <laughs> I was going to say that's the the way they determine the best team, though, is who wins the World Series. So, exactly. You know, I, I, um, so it, it, then just because you mentioned the 
sort of just to post that he did play another World Series against those same Yankees and beat them with the uh, with Mike the Cardinals because he spent a he spent, he spent a few years with the Cardinals after uh, after his run in Pittsburgh was done and then mm-hmm. looks like what the Phillies for a year or so and then finished up with the Giants. And it's uh, funny because that's where he crossed crossed over with Branch Rickey again because Branch Rickey was by this point back <laughs> with St. Louis as a consultant and was opposed to bringing. Dick Grote in Ricky thought he was too old, but he ends up getting overruled. And then Grote uh, ends up on that great 64 Cardinal team and wins another title. And believe me, he could have been a professional basketball player because in reality, he was named UPI player of the year, 1952 for the Pistons. And at Duke, he he's won many awards. He was the Helms foundation player of the year in 51, a consensus first team, all American in 51, twice presented this Southern conference McKelvin award for male athlete of the year in 51 and 52. So he was an outstanding basketball player on top of that. His best years probably with Pittsburgh, but he does manage to finish uh, second in the MVP voting in the National League in 1963 with the Cardinals. His first year in St. Louis finishes second to uh, Sandy Koufax in one of Koufax's great years. A couple other things that I noted. uh, He was known as the best hit and run man or one of the best hit and run men in the entire in all of Major League Baseball. And this I thought was interesting, especially given the tie in with the 1960 World Series. Um, in 1959, he was actually almost traded by Pittsburgh to the Kansas City Athletics for Roger Maris. And the deal sort of fell through at the last minute. And so just think of how different baseball would have been and Yankees would have been pirates would have been all this stuff. If if Dick Grote had gotten traded to Kansas City for Roger Maris in the late 50s. <laughs> and we're talking about his batting title. <clears throat> he was the first pirate player to legally batting when he did that. And the last one before him was Honest Wagner. It was way back in 1911. Another shortstop. Yeah, there you go. And one of the best ever, actually. Exactly, exactly. So I, I would imagine, Harv, that this is definitely a guy who who holds a special special place in the in the memory of the Pittsburgh baseball fan. Oh, absolutely. And again, what makes him special is that he was born there, uh, lived there, played there, and passed away there. So he was... Definitely the the definition of a Pittsburgher uh, all the way around. And if you think about it, he's kind of the number, the list of, and maybe I maybe I'm missing a couple, but the number of pirates who have won MVP. That's really sort of a pantheon of guys. You know, Clemente, mm-hmm. Stargell, mm-hmm. Barry Bonds. I know McCutcheon did it the one year. That is really an impressive list of pirates MVPs that he's a part of. Yeah, and. and- Something else that Grote has over them is there's only been 13 players in history that played professional NBA and Major League Baseball, and Grote is one of them. And he was actually featured on a cover of Sports Illustrated three times, 60, 63, and 66. Not bad at all. Well, uh, Harv, uh, thanks for joining us. Before we let you go, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Total Sports Recall and uh, the podcast that you do for the network? Uh, started out as Sports History, remember, because my passion is sports history. And then I changed it to Total Sports Recall because I want to cover all sports. And basically, um, I try to bring as many guests on as possible. That's the focus of the show. And when I'm not doing that, I'll do something on history. But mostly I've had guests on and we cover any sport, all sports, uh, mostly history. I hope and um, total sports recall podcast just doesn't encompass a podcast. I have a, a website at totalsportsrecall.com, a YouTube channel, uh, same name, total sports recall uh, with a 59 at the end on YouTube. 
Um, and I also have um, this podcast and I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle at Twitter is at uh, TSR Harv 59. Um, and I've had some pretty good guests on my podcast. Craig Colquitt used to be uh, the punter for the Steelers, won a Super Bowl. He's been a guest. Steve Fidel was, went to my high school. He played for University of Pittsburgh, started a linebacker there and ended up on the Steelers for a few years. And of course, Terry Hanratty was on the show as a guest and he was the backup to Terry Bradshaw, not for Terry Bradshaw. He may have been the starter and he might have been the quarterback that won the four Super Bowls in the 70s. Well, uh, Pittsburgh is a great sports town with a really great, uh, really great sports history. And so uh, always enjoy listening to you cover it and uh, enjoyed having you out with us today. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. Um, you guys got a great show as well. And uh, I really uh, tip my hat to Sports History Network and Arnie Chapman because uh, he's put together quite a uh, network here. And we've got a lot of great shows on here, including your own. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Harv. Take care. All right. You guys Bye, take Harv. care Thanks. of yourself. Bye now. Vida Blue, born in 1949, died on May 6th. A six-time All-Star, Blue won three world titles with the Oakland A's of the early 1970s. His greatest season was in 1971, where he led the league in ERA and was named AL MVP and Cy Young Award winner. We talked very on about, uh, in this episode, um, Sal Bando, who was the captain of those ace teams uh vita blue was one of the other all-time greats on you know on these teams uh we talked about um uh a few years ago we did a, a in memoriam for mudcat grant who was a pitcher with uh, a bunch of teams in the 60s and 70s uh, the minnesota twins among others and he actually co-authored a book called the black aces which is a list of all of the the african-american pitchers who won uh, 20 games in their career. And one of the most prominent of them was Vida Blue, who was 24 and eight uh, in 71, his best year, like we said, 20 and nine in 1973, and then 22 and 11 in 1975. Those, those A's were uh, one of the most colorful teams of the really in baseball history and maybe a sort of a long side catfish hunter, but Vida Blue was really if not their their ace, at least their their co ace, I guess you might say. Yeah, and he, another guy who came up at nineteen years old in nineteen sixty nine. You know, he made what four starts in sixty nine, six starts in seventy, and by seventy one, he's going twenty four and eight with a one point eight two ERA in thirty nine starts, twenty four complete games on a team that did they make the. ALCS in 71 and lose they did they were a 101 and 60 and then they got swept mm -hmm. by the Baltimore Orioles in fact that 71 team is by far their best team as far as regular season record that's the only A's team of that era to win 101 games the three championship years 93 94 and 90 and then a year later in 75, 98, uh, and then that, that's right about when Finley starts to start to sell off all of his players. But yeah, that 71 team is actually their their best team. And and Blue is um, you know, Catfish Hunter is the other the other ace. Um he's he's the righty complement to to Blue the lefty. Hunter's actually a full run worse in ERA at, at but still sub three at 2.96. They got a Hall of Fame closer in in Raleigh Fingers. So 
that is a great team. In fact, it's the best single season A's team of that whole 70s dynasty. Blues postseason. It looks like he's up and down a little bit in the postseason. Um, only way he's actually his career record in, in the postseason, which is all the years between 71 and 75. He's only one in five. Um, he won a game in the 74 uh, ALCS. You know, he had some some numbers that weren't horrible, but a couple that jump out at you. The 10.29 ERA in the 73 ALCS, a nine ERA in the 75 ALCS. But, um, you know, some decent numbers otherwise. But like you said, it was, you know, he was bunch of top 10 finishes in the Cy Young after 71 when he wins it. He's seventh in 73, sixth in 75, sixth again in 76. It's actually comes in third in the Cy Young in 78 after he's on the Giants and pitches actually all the way until 1986 at 36 years old. He's with the Giants. Then he goes to Kansas City for a couple of years. Misses the 84 season and in 85 and 86, he's back on the Giants. In 86, he actually starts 28 games and goes 10 and 10. A few things about his career. He later writes in his autobiography that he was having drug issues uh, as early as 1972. So that might explain why he never quite reaches the heights as he did in 1971. He He's part of those. Uh, I think he's. I don't know if he's part of those famous St. Louis uh, baseball drug trial. Pittsburgh. I sorry. Pittsburgh baseball drug trials in the in the early eighties. Let, let me take a look at that. I, I think he probably is. Yeah. No, he is. He's he's a part of. Uh, he's a part of the. Uh, he he's uh, he's named as part of those Pittsburgh uh, drug um, drug trials. This this is interesting actually. Um, he's one of ten players who is not suspended or punishment, but is or punished, but is subject to random drug testing for the duration of his career. Uh, other players uh, include uh, Tim Raines, who we know about some of his early drug drug issues, as well as Dusty Baker. And I, I never knew that Dusty Baker was was caught up in any of that. So that might be sort of the addiction issues might be part of what. Uh, Part of what uh, makes it so that he doesn't ever doesn't have the longevity in the Hall of Fame career. There are a couple thing other things that I wanted to note, uh, and some of this is from his New York Times obituary. Charles O. Finley, the uh, famous, uh, sometimes loved, sometimes hated uh, owner of the Oakland A's, offers uh, Blue two thousand dollars to legally change his name to Vida True Blue. Uh, Blue declines. <laughs> He says, if Mr. Finley thinks it's such a great name, why doesn't he call himself True O. Finley? <laughs> yeah, probably a good call there. In 1971, when he has this great season, he's only making about $15,000 as a salary. And so uh, a, a baseball uh, fan, a baseball observer, cock, calls Blue the most underpaid player in baseball. Do you know who that fan is? No, I don't. Richard Nixon. <laughs> so and then the other thing i wanted to mention we, when we talked about bando we talked about uh with this great book uh by jason turbo dynastic bombastic fantastic about the uh the 70s a's and uh this is uh orioles and future um future yankee outfielder uh vita uh paul blair he says there's some guys you go hitless against and it doesn't bother you what you tell yourself is, well, I got a piece of them, or at least I fouled one off. 
But Vita Blue makes you go 0 and 4 and you feel humiliated. He doesn't give you a single thing. He strips you naked right there in public. Trying to hit that thing he throws is like trying to hit dead weight. And apparently early on in that 71 season, there was even talk that he might win 30 games only three years after Denny McLean did it for the last time in, in 1968. So had he continued on that trajectory of the early 70s, he might well have been a Hall of Famer. Yeah, and I guess he also late later on said that he thinks it might have been not just that you said it, you said his longevity might not have been what it could have been because of the drugs. He also thinks that maybe that's one of the reasons he didn't get in the Hall of Fame was because of being punished for being linked to uh, being linked to drugs. And I guess he said something along the lines of there's plenty of guys in the Hall of Fame without halos. I don't know. Do his numbers rise to the level that would probably you know, qualify him to be in the discussion or he did win 209 games in his career. So 3.27 ERA, uh, a quick look at baseball reference. Um, he, he's got a hunt. His hall of fame monitor number is 114, which is, um, and the average for a hall of famer is, um, average for a likely hall of famer is about, a hundred. Um, he's 81st all time. I, I so baseball reference his similarity scores. He's on there with a lot of guys who are not in the Hall of Fame. Billy Pierce, uh, Oral Hershiser, Bob Welch. The guys he's comparative to who are in the Hall of Fame are Catfish Hunter, his teammate, uh, Hal Newhauser, who um pitcher for the Tigers in the 40s and was sort of um may have had his numbers inflated a little bit by the fact that he played in the in world during World War II and he was one of the few guys who did who didn't miss any time for World War II so I think he probably falls just short it, it, it kind of in some ways is almost sort of like a Roger Maris type where he played for a long time but he had a few shining years where he was the best in the league and also a champion so Probably just short, I would say, even if you put the drug stuff aside. That makes sense. And like you said, it might be the drug stuff may have been why his numbers didn't reach the level that, you know, they certainly looked like they might have been able to. Should we move on to somebody from another sport, uh, but the same basic era? Sure. And I think I'm up and we're going to talk about Joe Cap, who was born in 1938 and died on May 8th. Cap played most of his career in the Canadian Football League, but joined the Minnesota Vikings for three seasons from 1967 to 1969. His greatest year was in 1969, where he led the Vikings to a 12 and two record and an NFL title. That same year, he became one of only eight quarterbacks to throw for seven touchdowns in an NFL game. Probably the shortest pro or at least the shortest pro American career of anybody we'll talk about on these uh, this year or any other year. Yeah, it's weird. He kind of he's there in between Fran Tarkenton eras with Sam uh, with Minnesota. He's while Fran Tarkenton's running for his life with the Giants. Joe Cap is in Minnesota is basically what the uh, what the story is there. And and he he's the quarterback of those Vikings teams that get the Super Bowl four. So, you know, he was technically the quarterback of a team that won an NFL championship. If you want to look at it that way, mm-hmm. Um they didn't win the Super Bowl, but they did win the NFL. They won the last ever NFL championship besides the Super Bowl before the merger. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I knew I knew he wasn't around for long. I didn't realize he was only in the NFL for for basically three years. And there's a he goes to the Patriots of, for one year well, in 70. 
there's an aspect of that we'll, we'll get into in a minute because that might be the most interesting uh, interesting part of it. It says he was part of a basically a trade between the CFL and the NFL, one of the very few transactions to ever occur between the two leagues. I wouldn't really be thrilled if I was an NFL player and I got told you got traded to the CFL <laughs> even back then. But um, yeah, he, you know, he was a, came into a pretty good Vikings team and, and was there for a few years before, uh, you know, Tarkenton returned and, and he kind of uh, faded back away. And, you know, kind of sadly, I, I think most of the highlights of Joe Cap in the NFL are, you know, the Chiefs kicking their butt in Super Bowl four. And you'd have to think we talked a little bit earlier uh, on this special with Jeremy McFarlane. And we talked about Bud Grant, who himself had a long coaching career in the Canadian Football League before he came to the Vikings. You'd have to think I don't believe that Cap played for Grant in the CFL. No, that he hadn't. Um, Cap uh, Grant coached the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Cap played for the uh, Calgary Stampeders and the British Columbia Lions. But Grant knew of Cap from the CFL. And you'd have to imagine that that's why Cap ended up in the NFL, that absent the background knowledge of uh, the also recently deceased Bud Grant, Joe Cap would never have set foot in the NFL. Yep. And, you know, he made the made the most of the the time he was there. He was what made 48 starts in those uh, in those four years, counting the year with New England um, uh, or Boston, I guess, at the time, 69. He's on the te- on the team that goes 12 and one throws for 19 touchdowns to 13 interceptions, which by modern standards don't seem that great. But 19 touchdowns in that era was was a pretty hefty number, especially on a team with that many wins. He was second in the MVP voting to Roman Gabriel of the Los Angeles Rams. He was a distant second, but he did finish second in the MVP voting that year in 69. And then, um, you know, from that to basically being out of the league very shortly thereafter, it was kind of a uh, precipitous drop off. And he did something, his Viking career comes to an end. He does something called playing out his option, which is something that NFL players, there was free agency in the NFL before there was free agency in baseball and the other sports I'm not as familiar with. But you basically, in the 60s at least, you had an option, which was literally, it was an option. You could play at your previous year's salary. And then after that one year, it was called playing out your option. And then after that one year, you would be free agent and you could go sign wherever you could sign. The person that I know that sort of did that the most famous was Jim Taylor, the the, the pullback of the Packers in the 1960, who in 1966 played out his option in, in, you know, one Super Bowl, one with the Packers and then left to go to New Orleans. So that spells the end of the Joe Cap era in Minnesota. He goes to Boston for a year and then the Patriots draft Jim Plunkett, who would end up being a Super Bowl quarterback with the, Raiders, and so that's the end of Cap's Cap's uh, NFL career. So a blip on the screen, but uh, the quarterback for a really, really, really good Viking team in 1969, and uh, a really tough guy, guy who played hurt all the time, and for those few years at least, uh, was was one of the really good quarterbacks in the NFL. And we should talk about sort of how it came to an end. So he. 
the 70 season starts a few weeks into the season. He signs with the Patriots. The Patriots stink. He's the year ends and Pete Rozelle, he had signed some sort of different contract as a free agent. And Pete Rozelle basically insisted that Cap sign a standard player contract. Cap talked to his lawyer. He refuses to sign never plays another down in the NFL. He starts an antitrust lawsuit versus the NFL claiming the standard NFL contract was unconstitutional and constituted a restraint of trade. He won the judgment four years later. It was until 1976 before he got to the damage portion of the trial and they decided he was not damaged. So he won kind of not really didn't see any money out of it by the time it was done he was you know well past playing age it said although he was not recorded any damages in 1977 the rules at issue in the cap case were later revised a new system was instituted and a multi-million dollar settlement was made between the nfl and the nfl players association so joe cap had a hand in that um even though i don't think he saw a cent from his <laughs> Obviously, later in life, you know, his, his brother is uh, kind of a mixed bag. His brother comes up with the the French fry uh, chip things, but also is his brother's an alcoholic. He's constantly sleeping on the couch, facing away from the uh, facing away from the screen. Where's that hat? Are you talking about Andy Cap, the cartoon, the comic? Yeah, it's Joe Cap's brother. It's well, no, that's not it at all. Um <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. And uh, this is Dan, and we have a little bit of bonus material for you on this one. Andrew and I are glad to be joined by Os Davis, our Sports History Network colleague, to talk a little bit more to us about Joe Cap. Oz, thanks for doing this. Uh, yeah, sure. You're welcome. I mean, great to be here, et cetera, et cetera. I haven't, I haven't done enough for the Sports History Network lately, so, so I'm happy to do this. So this is a little bit different for you because this is the first time we've had you on one of these where it's not been a Laker. I think uh, we, <laughs> we did Kobe a few years ago, Elgin uh-huh. Baylor. Uh, there might right. have been one other at some point that doesn't come to mind, but uh, different, uh, different city, uh, different sport. Uh, Sort of the whole the whole deal. So, uh, what what made you want to talk to us about uh, Joe Cap? Oh well, actually, I mean, um, I used to do this thing at the end of podcast way back when I was doing my first podcast. This must have been like almost twenty years ago at this point, um, and it was on European basketball. And whenever we had a guest on, we would ask him, "Okay, uh, at the end of the podcast, what are your three favorite teams in any sport?" Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not much of a loyalist, okay? But I usually say, if I had to answer this question myself, I would say, you know, Lakers, number one, obviously. And number two is probably the Montreal Alouettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is, I have, and the third is whatever team I'm betting on that week. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and the truth is, is that I have known about and followed the CFL since I, as long as I can remember, uh, I go back pretty far. So I don't know if you guys know this, but back in the late seventies, early eighties, what they would tend to do is at the beginning of every football team, right? They'd release one of these books 
mm-hmm. right, with previews of all the mm-hmm. teams, and they'd have little pictures of all the of all the players and bio and stuff like this, right? And very often at the end of these books, like the last thirty pages or so, would be the CFL. <laughs> it, it was so cool to read about these, you know, the Blue Bombers. <laughs> you know, the the two teams called the Rough Riders. They don't have that anymore, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, they have nine teams, and two of them are called the Rough Riders. But uh, <laughs> so, but it's I've followed it on and off. You know, there have been obviously times of greater interest for American fans. Um, you know, when, for example, Doug Flutie was kicking ass up there. Um, people like to go back and retro look at Warren Moon, what he did in the CFL when, and, um, you know, when they, when the CFL tried to expand into the United States uh, in the nineties, of course, that was another time of interest. And in fact, the Baltimore Stallions won the CFL Grey Cup, which is certain to be the only time an American team ever wins the CFL Grey Cup. Uh, and uh, for the past eight years or so, I've had a CFL podcast. It is not part of the Sports History Network. It's called the Rouge, White, and Blue CFL Podcast. I do it with a, well, I guess now a friend of mine from Wisconsin, who is also a lifelong CFL fan. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I've been uh, into the CFL basically my whole life. As an added bonus, I can actually tie this into the Sports History Network. I kind of learned a lot more about Joe Cap, and I will talk about this a bit later on. And and Bud Grant, who, as I understand it, you also have an episode on an mm-hmm. in memoriam episode on coming out with uh, Jeremy McFarland. Right, Jeremy's doing yeah. that with you. Right? Jeremy, Jeremy joined us for Grant. Yeah, and I think yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think you'll hear that one. You'll hear Jeremy before you hear this because uh, 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 Grant passed away a little earlier in the year. So, yeah, hopefully if everybody who's hearing this uh, will have already heard that episode with uh, uh, with Bud Grant featured. So, yeah. So, so I backed into a lot more about Joe Cap and about Bud Grant via Angelo Mosca who I did an episode of Truly the Goats about. Uh, mm-hmm. Angelo Mosca, of course, the great um, – superstar athlete in uh one sport and professional wrestling <laughs> the one sport being canadian football and uh he, he and joe cap have a long and interesting history in fact really oh yeah oh yeah, oh, yeah. what was that well okay so we can go back to the beginning of joe's professional career right after i mean i guess for me the main thing about cap is that okay there's the nfl network series of football life mm-hmm. right now for me my all-time favorite episode of this by far i mean not even close was the doug flutie episode not just because it's a cfl thing but because he was also in the usfl he was in the cfl he played for bill belichick you know he was involved in that music city miracle game I mean, his his whole career just spans history. He touches on history at all these key points. And I feel like Cap was the same. Um, ultimately, Joe Cap will always appear in the trivia books as being the answer to the question, um, you know, who is the only quarterback to start in a Rose Bowl game, a Grey Cup game, and a Super Bowl? 
Mm-hmm. Now, in fact, he did that in 1970, and it's stuck ever since. So that's what, like, <laughs> what? Super, super Bowl four. So that's about 54 years, and it's guaranteed not to happen this year. Now, a lot of the young folks might say, nah, Rose Bowl, not such a big deal anymore. Part of the college football playoff system, right? So not that big a deal. But on the other hand, to imagine a CFL quarterback winning a great cup and then getting into the NFL mm-hmm. these days, yeah, like off the charts, unbelievable. Uh, it's just not mm-hmm. done anymore. When Joe left uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, took them to their last uh, Rose Bowl appearance. Uh, that was in 1958. He was also a star in basketball. He was also on the Pacific Coast Conference winning basketball team, Cal Bears as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a two-sport star. And uh, he was drafted in the, and I love talking about old football, the 18th round mm-hmm. by the Washington football team, let's say. And uh, so uh, was not really taken seriously. It is said that he was not even invited to training camp. So it was just a complete write-off, basically, in the 18th round, right? So, So he decided to go and try his luck in Canada specifically for the Calgary Stampeders who owned his rights. Um, they do this thing in the CFL they have for they um, draft certain players or they draft certain regions of the United States to have the rights to those players should they ever decide to play in the CFL. Uh, these are American citizens. Canadian citizens are up for grabs. Yeah. They want to play in the CFL. You just draft them. So, uh, so he went and played in in, Calif- uh, in California, in Canada, and you know, again, this was the same path that Angelo Mosca took. And what's important here is not that he went to Canada because he couldn't play in the NFL, right? Angelo Mosca certainly could have played in the NFL, uh, but Cap it later did play in the NFL, and the reason why he did that is because it was an economically viable alternative. Right, like the CFL pay rates were comparable in the fifties, in the sixties, to the American football leagues until the AFL came along, and the NFL was forced to, you know, jack up their salaries because demand was up. Now the Canadian Football League was paying at about equal level for all but the super duper stars. Uh, Every other in every other area, you could make just as much. So it's not like it is today where the Canadian game is essentially extremely talented athletes who are awesome at football. They're just a tad too small or a tad too slow to play in the NFL, right? So in those days, this was an economic alternative. Now, (laughs) um, let's see. So he goes to the Calgary Stampeders, didn't have – fantastic success there. Played pretty well for a couple of years, but two years later, he was traded to the BC Lions. Now, the BC Lions uh, were, to that point, the last expansion team in the CFL. And uh, this team was, let's see, they were in their seventh season. They were founded in 61. They were in their seventh season by the time Joe Cap came to them. They had had one winning season to that point, nine and seven. And then, you know, 
Cap comes in a couple of years later. They're in the Grey Cup. Now, they're in the Grey Cup against the Hamilton Tiger Cats. The thing about Canadian football at that time, again, here's Joe touching on history. The thing about Canadian football at that time was the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Winnipeg Blue Bombers completely dominated the league. It was something like in eight of 10 years from 57 to 67, I want to say, somewhere in this period. In eight of the 10 years, either one or both of those teams played in the Grey Cup. Okay, so these teams dominated the league. So when BC finally makes their first great cup, they face off against the, the Hamilton Tiger Cats with Angela Mosca leading the defense. Okay, so in that game, <laughs> in that game was a very notorious event. Uh, there was a sort of, I guess, what nowadays would be called um, a personal foul. It would be a late hit. It would be an unsportsmanlike conduct. It would be unnecessary roughness, where Angelo basically took out halfback Willie Fleming. Now, mm-hmm. Fleming is a, is a Canadian Football Hall of Famer. Uh, so, you know, he was key to this game. He took him out. BC was never the same. 21-10 final score. Uh, and from this point, Mosca was known throughout the CFL, literally the next day in the newspapers, his accepted new new moniker was the Big Nasty. (laughs) (laughs) This was forever to be his moniker because of this game. Now, we'll have to remember that because it comes back much, much, much later in Joe's career. Okay. So after this, you know, there is this phenomenon that, Happens to some CFL players nowadays. Um, Alex Singleton is a good is a good example of this. He played his rookie season with the Calgary Stampeders, got to the Great Cup, was basically the leader of the defense in his rookie season, and now he's playing. He's not playing for the Eagles anymore. Uh, I forget who he's playing for, but they are a contender. Uh, but he's still in the NFL, so. Great Cup winning team. We'll get some of those guys. We'll get interest from NFL teams. Okay, so same thing happens with Joe. Joe drew a lot of interest. He drew interest from about six or seven teams. But the same guy, and I have his name here. Oh yes, Joe Finks was the GM of the Montreal uh, Montreal of the Minnesota Vikings at this point, and he coincidentally, had been the GM of the Calgary Stampeders when they first brought Joe Cap over there. Meanwhile, coaching the team is, of course, Bud Grant, who had been coach of, of course, those Winnipeg Blue Bombers who were yep. winning like five Super right. Bowls in 10 years, uh, five Grey Cups in 10 years. Uh, he was the coach of the Vikings. And so they convinced him to come over. Now, again, the Vikings at this point, were an expansion team. Right? They were about six or seven years old at this point, mostly as a response to the AFL, some people think. Uh, that's a market that wasn't covered by the AFL, so they figured they'd take it. And uh, they, the interesting bit here is, is that they convinced uh, Joe to come over in what was reported at the time as a trade between Minnesota and the BC Lions. 
Now, it actually wasn't a trade. It was basically just you wave your guy and make sure nobody in your league picks him up. We'll wave our guy so nobody picks him up, and then we'll work out contract details. Right, but this sort of nuance didn't really get reported back in the day. Uh, you can you can go back and look it up. It's a very strange situation, but it basically goes down as a trade. And I mean, I think this happens maybe three times in football history, where an NFL team and a CFL team make a trade for a player. Uh, the other player involved in the trade was a guy called Jim Young, who had, got drafted out of an Ontario college. To play NFL ball, played for a couple of years, said, I want to go back home to Canada, eh? And so they traded him uh, for Joe Cap. Uh, at this point, by the time Cap left the CFL, he was second all time in that league in career yardage at 22,725 and second all time in touchdown passes with 137 and that's just in nine seasons and the cfl was still playing a 16 game schedule at this point so that's some pretty good numbers Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's 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 some pretty good stats you can see why they wanted him in the nfl now again so he joins uh the vikings uh guess what by 1968 they're in the playoffs for the first time in 1969 they had a season where basically, if you include the two playoff games, which they won, they went 14 and two. They got their only league title in that year and unfortunately went on to lose the Super Bowl to the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. And but I think hey, the, the Vikings, I think, are sort of the only, uh, the only team to win, uh, win a title in the old, uh, you know, those, those years before the Super Bowl to win an NFL or an AFL title for uh, maybe, I guess, Buffalo, maybe also, but, you know, they won an NFL title, um, in 69, the last year before the, the, uh, the formal, the merger was finalized and they haven't mm-hmm. been, been anywhere since, um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I think we we probably should wrap it up uh, just about here, mm-hmm. Oz. But uh, this was uh, oh, wow. this was this was great. This was a good sort of, and and I think this was helpful because we really got into. Um, uh, we talked a lot more about his NFL career. So uh, you sort oh, of wow. uh, giving us the background on the Canadian stuff and the CFL. I think that was perfect. Oh wow! Well, I uh, I really should wrap this up, though. I, sure. I I really should conclude the Angelo Mosca story. Please. Because this is this is pretty notorious. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so in 2011, they're holding the Grey Cup in Vancouver again, and so the Alumni Association thought it would be a pretty good idea to have a luncheon, you know, and uh, you know have some famous guests from mm-hmm. uh, that that famous Grey Cup game. So sure enough, they invite Joe Cap and Angelo Mosca. They bring them out on stage, right? And, uh, you know, everybody knows about this rivalry. For 48 years, these guys have been talking trash in the media about Mm -hmm. this. You know, Cap calling Mosca a dirty player, cheater, whatever. Okay. So they come out, and Joe Cap, he brings a bouquet of flowers, right? Everybody's laughing and whatever. Angelo, of course, suggests that he perform that, let's say he perform an insertion into a major orifice. (laughs) Okay. Takes his seat, you know, the whole crowd's laughing. Cap turns to the crowd, shakes his head, and just, and then he starts like putting them in Mosca's face. Mosca starts trying to hit him with his cane. Oh my gosh. Okay. And then pretty soon, Cap is throwing punches. These guys are 73 and they're having a dust up. 
Canadian football fans loved this. This was the highlight of the top 10 sports center top 10 for that evening was this dust up. Okay. And later on, they're interviewing then current BC Lions quarterback, Travis Lule, who said, yeah, I've met Joe before the fire is still there. <laughs> and that's really, and that's, and that's the thing really is that, you know, this was a guy for whom the fire never really burned out. Mm-hmm. Joe Cap of football life. Yeah, <laughs> must be the next episode. I, I would love it. So uh, Fantastic. Before, we, before we let you go, uh, give us sure. the name of your CFL podcast again and anything else. Sure. You, uh, anywhere else we can find you? Uh, well, uh, I should probably get back to Orville Mulligan, sports writer. The uh, let's see, the sports drama, the sports history drama, audio, audio drama podcast, uh, which has been nominated for a, a best uh, sports podcast award. Uh, mm-hmm. I should be getting back to that, but basically, my active one, not active in the offseason, is called Rouge, White, and Blue CFL podcast. It's hosted by myself and a guy named joe pritchard uh you can get this wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> but unfortunately not at sports history network i usually don't do as deep a dive into cfl sports history as i did for the show so well, well we appreciate it's great it to do so yep absolutely so check R. I. That out. joe cap odds uh, uh thanks for joining us giving us some background on the cfl and uh we really appreciate it take care sure, sure. yeah thanks very much all right, uh, we're going to move along here. We have uh, another honoree and also another guest, uh, Denny Crum, uh, who we're going to talk about here. Denny Crum uh, was born in 1937 and passed away on May 9th. Mentored by John Wooden at UCLA, Crum coached the Louisville men's basketball team for 30 seasons, winning two national championships and reaching six Final Fours. He was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame in 1994 and the College Basketball Hall of Fame in 2006. And I am glad to have back with me here again. Uh, Andrew, uh, unfortunately, not able to join me for this one, not able to join us. But uh, Dana Augusta from the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast is with us once again. Dana, welcome back and thank you. Man, great, great to be back, man. No problem, man. I'm really having fun with this. Yeah, we always have a good time. We this is the uh, and I've mentioned this uh, other times in the episode. This is sort of the flagship of the sport of the uh, of the Hill Old Sports Podcast. This is the one thing number one. That's the one thing that we do every year, and it's also the one thing the one side we we have guests uh, you know from the network you know, popping in and out throughout the year if if there's relevant reasons or to talk about a book or whatever. But this is sort of the one time uh, to celebrate the end of the year that we not only celebrate these men, but uh, celebrate the sports history network and gather some of our, our co-hosts together to talk about figures that were important to them in the world of sports that we lost in 2023. So with that, Dana, why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on Denny Crum and what made you want to come on and talk about him? Well, Denny Crum was the first basketball coach that I remember as a kid growing up, really recognizing that this was a really, really good coach. Um, he six final fours, uh, national championships in 1980 and 1986. Um, those were like my very formative years of being a sports fan, meaning that when they won it in 1980, I think I was seven years old 
And that's when I really first started watching sports. Um, and then he won it again in, in 86. Uh, unfortunately, they be, he beat my LSU Tigers in the <laughs> Final Four that year to get to the national championship game against Duke, against a loaded Duke team. Um, and he had a couple of other Final Fours. And, you know, uh, 82 with, you know, he went with George, you know, with the Georgetown, North Carolina, University of Houston. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable Final Four in 82, which I still consider was the most star studded Final Four we ever had. You might be right about that. And 83, the following year, he went up against Houston in the semifinals, which a lot of people thought that should have been the national championship game. Um, and, Houston ended up win- winning that, but losing to North Carolina State ultimately with the 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 the, the dunk at the buzzer um, by Lorenzo Charles. But uh, Denny Crum was one of those first, one of those coaches that you felt that he was going to be at the school like forever. You know, when you thought of the Louisville Cardinals, you thought of two things: you thought of Denny Crum, and you thought about that red blazer he always wore. Uh huh. <laughs> that's when that's what you thought about with Denny Crum. And he had some powerhouse teams, especially in those early 80 years. Only five coaches have reached more final fours. That's a lot of final fours. The the two national championships is obviously something that's matched by a lot of others, but but six final fours. There's only about a, you know, well, there's not only about, there's about five guys, there's five other guys, and I don't have the list specifically in front of me. Only five other coaches have reached that many final fours. So he is in, even though you don't hear about him a lot. Louisville is maybe not a, you know, a UNC, Duke, UCLA, Indiana, sort of not what maybe immediately comes to mind when you think of a college basketball school. And he didn't really serve as head coach anywhere else. He was only ever there. He also, there's not maybe not a specific moment or a specific player that you can associate with Denny Crum. The best, uh, the best player that he probably ever coached was, uh, well, Purvis Ellison was probably the best college player he coached. And Earl Ellison was later drafted, uh, drafted number one in the NBA draft, I believe, by the the Washington Bullets. The Bullets. I was drafted at number one. The best player he ever coached as far as guys who went on to big NBA careers was probably Daryl Griffith, who was a. Uh, sort of a big time. He was called one of the doctors of dunk on the 7980. Yep. Dr. Duncanstein was his nickname. Mm-hmm. And he was a great player. He was a. He was one of these guys, sort of like a, a, a previous in memoriam honoree. Uh, we, we talked a few years ago about Mark Eaton, who passed away. Griffith was another one of those guys who was a player, a, a member of the Utah Jazz, sort of in the late 80s, early 90s with Stockton and Malone before they really sort of exploded. So I think there might be some reasons why you don't hear about Denny Crum alongside some of these other guys with similar winning records, but Guy was a, a hell of a coach. They called him Cool Hand Luke because he That's had a right. very, very, uh, very calm uh, sideline demeanor. He did not have the personality of somebody that Dane is going to be around to talk with us about uh, in a little bit. Um, but I mean, hey, really, really good to great uh, college basketball coach. I think that he may be just because of where he was um, in Louisville, st- always in the shadow of Kentucky. Um, he's somewhat maybe over, maybe underrated as far as like a great coach. I mean, you think about when you think about great coaches, you think of Wooden, you think of Shashevsky, you think of Roy Williams, you think of Bob Knight, you think of a whole lot. But Denny Crum, six hundred and seventy-five career wins as a head coach. That's 
that's a lot. That, that that's that, that's a lot of success. You know, he was one of the first coaches to really understand not the importance of non-conference scheduling, because he would schedule like he was scheduled. He would schedule big name schools to get his teams ready for the tournament. That was like his calling card. He would mm-hmm. purposely schedule. They, I mean, they wouldn't like 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 you would see now. You have like teams play like the smaller Division One, maybe Division One AA schools, you know, and schedule them. But no, that's that's not what Louisville did. Louisville did go out and actually purposely get people like really big name schools to play to get his teams ready for that tournament run, whether it was in the old school Metro conference to Mm -hmm. all the way to the conference USA. And it should also be noted that he, he learned under John Wooden and it's, it's sort of funny because his, his playing career and his coaching career sort of took the same trajectory at the beginning he started off as a player in 1955 at a junior college called los angeles pierce junior college and he then went on to play his last two years under wooden at ucla then went back uh, as soon as uh, basically after he graduated he coached a couple years of freshman at ucla then went back to his original alma mater los angeles pierce junior college for three years uh, as an assistant coach and then four more years as a as a head coach, he's a California guy born in San Fernando, California. So, you know, another one of these guys, college basketball guys who was from nowhere near the South, but ends up making his fame uh, as a college basketball coach in the South. And then so he's with Los Angeles Bears. And then he goes back for four years to, to coach under Wooden from 67 to 71 because it's UCLA in the late 60s, early 70s. He wins a couple of national championships, uh, c- coaches, uh, coaches, uh, the future Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Alcindor. And I didn't realize this until I was researching this actually was one of the key guys in recruiting Bill Walton to come to UCLA. Yeah, Bill Walton coming out of Helix High School out of San Diego. He was one of the key factors to getting the big redhead to uh, Westwood. What was interesting about the early career of Denny Crum, which I think is all you always see this in sports where there's always some kind of symmetry that's that's that goes on and no one really sees until after it's done. In 1972 was his final was his first final four with Louisville. He ends up in the final four. And who does he lose to? UCLA. Mm-hmm. 1975, in the national semifinal in San Diego, they play in the first game of the final four. Who does he play? UCLA. And they end up losing on the last second jump shot by Richard Washington in the, in the national semifinal. 1980, he goes back to the final four again. Gets to the finally gets to the national championship game, but who's there waiting for him at the national championship game? You guessed it, UCLA. UCLA. But this time, coached by who? Larry Brown. Mm-hmm. And which he finally gets this championship, you know, in uh, Indianapolis. Uh, uh, Dal Griffith is named the uh, finals on tournament most outstanding player. Um, and that was his first national championship, you know, knocking off his alma mater, the, the school that he helped kind of help with Coach Wooden um, win a national. He finally victimizes his school. So you see that from time to time that you have to get over the master or get over the place where you started to finally get to where you want to go. 
And it's funny, talk about a, a juxtaposition, and, and obviously nobody knew that at the time, but Larry Brown, who's very much a contemporary of Denny Crum, but has the completely opposite career, bouncing back and forth from team to team, pros to college, pros to college, pretty much for, for four or five decades. So sort of right. a, a little bit of a juxtaposition there. But I think there's some value for a guy like Denny Crum. And I was just reading this um, in his obituary uh, as I was preparing for this. One of the things about him is that he stayed a part of the community at Louisville right? pretty much for his entire life, even though he was not somebody, you know, like I said, he was from California, but he, he basically stayed in Kentucky. He also he co-hosted a radio show with Joe B. Hall, who was a long time. I bet you that was fun. I bet you that show <laughs> yeah. was fun. Mm-hmm. And he was as recently as uh, 2022, he had, you know, been at games, been at been at events on campus and especially with the you know those those few years of the covid uh pandemic a lot of these older figures maybe weren't seen as much in their old stomping grounds so really cool that pretty much up through the end of his life he remained in a respected and honored part of the louisville community yeah i mean which was very that's very interesting the fact that someone who was you know from california Started off in California, played for UCLA, then moved over to Louisville, middle of the country, you know, in Kentucky, uh, and then decided to live out the remaining years of his life. I mean, he could have easily decided, you know, like once I re- once he retired, like, you know what, I'm going to move back. Back to the sunshine. Know, back to the sunshine. Get rid of this snow. You, you know, get rid of this crazy cold weather, this crazy, unbelievable, you know, impossibly to predict cold weather here in the South. And just go back to California, but he did, but he didn't. He decided to stay in Louisville, where he's absolutely beloved in the in the state. You know, you, I mean, it's always you know Louisville will always be second fiddle to Kentucky. But there was a, a number of years where they he was Kentucky. He was the the bas- he, the absolute son of Kentucky basketball. And, and even though he was from California, kind of displaced. He was at second national championship against, you know, Duke against this very loaded Duke team, which was incredible, you know, and you look at the names of that Duke team when he won it in 86, uh, which was a second national title um, with um, Purvis Ellison, first freshman ever to win tournament MVP. But that Duke team that they had, check out these names, Tommy Amaker, Jay Billis, Mark Allery, Johnny Dawkins, that seems loaded. Oh yeah, but something with that. But he devised a plan, you know, to kind of slow that down. Now, Mike Shashevsky's first Final Four, you know, and he was way ahead of his time as far as like understanding what opposing teams wanted to do, and he had that wooden, that John Wooden uh, persona. You know, with the rolled up program in his hand, directing mm-hmm. the play, not getting overly excited, not staying. He called him Cool Hand Luke. He had that California cool, which he brought to Louisville. And that was tremendous, tremendously important for especially that Louisville team, because they kind of followed his lead. All right. Well, uh, Dana, uh, we want to thank you again uh, for coming on to talk about uh, yet another uh, interesting figure this time, uh, Denny Crumb. But, um, before we move on to our, our next honoree, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast that you've been doing on the histo- uh, sorry that you've been doing on the Sports History Network for the last few years? 
Well, actually, right now we uh, we're going to be going into into season number four, believe it or not, mm-hmm. um, season four. And I kind of changed up the the way that I do things on the on the podcast. If you listen to like the last the last one I did, I what I'm doing is I'm taking stuff that's happening in sports now, like right now, as we be like current events, but take them and just kind of tr- trying to kind of transpose and try to compare. To something that happened in the past that was very, very similar, uh-huh. and which was the basic, which was the basic reason for me starting this, because I'll be in conversation with friends and I say, well, this such and such happened. I say, yeah, it did happen. But I remember such and such and such and such happened the same way. And it happened with, you know, back then. And, you know, and so that was the general uh, crux of the or at least the general design of what I wanted to do with the podcast. There's, but there's some subjects that I will cover coming up this upcoming year. Um, one for certain is the 40th anniversary of the LA Olympics. Uh huh. And I, that was the first Olympics I remember watching. That was the Olympics where I fell in love with the Coliseum, which is on my bucket list to visit one day. Um, right around Final Four time, I'm going to do. Um, do like a little retrospective of two of the best Final Fours no one talks about, or at least the, ch- the two championship games no one talks about. That was the 89 championship game between Mi- uh, Michigan and Seton Hall, which went to overtime. Mm-hmm. And the other one we kind of touched on was the 97 championship game between Kentucky and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to do a couple of these, th- couple of those things. I have a couple of, I'm going to try to restart my, you know, forgotten franchises because I did a forgotten franchise episode talking about the St. Louis, St. Louis Hawks. Hawks, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna do a couple of more. I might talk about the Montreal Expos. That's when that's in the hopper. Also, I'm gonna talk about the the vagabond Kansas City Omaha, Kansas City once again Kings. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I have a couple of things in the hopper, but the true, but I'm going with the essence of what I wanted the podcast to be. And it was basically to talk about what goes on in sports right now and compare it to something very similar that happened in the past. I like that. I've often thought that would be a really good idea for a podcast. So that'll be that'll be a lot of fun to listen to uh, going forward. Uh, yeah, Dana Dana's sort of he's like he's sort of like Andrew and I are. He's a generalist. He'll he'll touch on everything. We have we have some really great shows on the network that focus on more specific topics, specific sports, what have you. But uh, like us, Dana sort of uh, will will dive into anything that that comes up and seems like it would be a. Uh, make for an interesting conversation. So check out uh, another one of the long running shows on the sports history network, uh, Dana Augusters, historically speaking sports and uh, Dana, you'll be back with us one more time uh, later on, but uh, thanks again for joining us. Man, thank you for having me on. All right. All right. Well, thank you to uh, Dana Augusters from historically speaking sports for uh, joining me to talk about Denny Crum. And uh, now uh, we're back with Andrew and we are back to baseball. And Andrew, do you want to read us your the name and the information on our next honoree? Sure. Uh, Don Denkinger died on May 12th, unfortunately known for a blown call at first base in game six of the 1985 World Series. Denkinger worked as an American League umpire for 30 seasons from 1969 to 1998. In that time, he worked four World Series and six League Championship Series. He was also the plate umpire for the famous Bucky Dent game in 1978. So I 
this is one where I sort of was back and forth on whether I should include it because I'm always sort of reluctant to include something that that's sort of a guy who or a person who's best known for their their worst moment or for messing something up. But I I thought that you know the Denkinger play, the Denkinger call uh, where he blew this call at first base in Game Six of the '85 World Series gave the Royals the win in that game. And then again, um, and then in game seven, the Royals sort of blew the Cardinals out of the water. I thought this would be an interesting one just because his name is so synonymous with a really big moment in baseball history. Yeah. And I guess before we fixate on that, we'll just, he was an umpire for almost 30 years. The four world series he called were 74, 80, 85, and 91 so that kind of legendary twins um twins brave series in 91 that would have been right and he was behind the plate for game seven Mm -hmm. which was uh, a pitcher's duel when jack morris pitched a a 10 inning shutout for the twins to win the world series and i believe he was opposed in that game i believe it was by smoltz let me just uh let me just while you, while you do that, he was he's one of only seven umpires who worked two perfect games. Now, he wasn't behind the plate for either of them. Second base umpire for Len Barker's perfect game on May 15th of 81. First base umpire for Kenny Rogers, perfect game on July 28th of 94. Denkinger was also the home plate umpire for Nolan Ryan's sixth no hitter on June 19 or June 11th of 1990. So, you know, the guy was a crew chief in major league baseball for a very long time. He worked some significant, you know, he kept getting postseason assignments, you know, well after the, the thing we're going to call, we're going to talk about. So, you know, it's definitely, I just, like you said, the reason we're talking about him probably is because of this play, but I don't want to just reduce the guy's life to a mistake he made. And it was Smoltz that went up against Jack Morris for the Braves in that that game seven of the 91 World Series. He was also behind the plate for uh, something that Yankee fans will appreciate, the Bucky Dent game in 78, the AL East playoff, maybe one of the you know the top five to eight games in Major League Baseball history. So he, he was there for for a lot of different parts of baseball history, you know, in the latter part of the, the 21st century or sorry, of the 20th century. Shall we talk about game six of the 1985 World Series? Yeah. And let me sort of uh, get it, get into this in a little bit of a different way. There's a great book. I, I think I say that, you know, several times an episode. Tyler Kepner, who's the baseball writer for the New York Times, uh, wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Grandest Stage. It's a history of the World Series, but it's done thematically. It's not sort of year by year. And one of his chapters is sort of what you know and what you might not know. And so... One of the things he says, what you know, the 1919 White Sox uh, conspired to throw the World Series. What you might not know, the Reds were the better team anyway. He says, uh, what you what you know, Don Larson threw a perfect game in game five of the 1956 World Series. What you might not know, Clem Labine threw a 10 inning shutout the next day. And then so one of the things he has here is what you know, a bad call crushed the Cardinals in the 1985 World Series. What you might not know, the Cardinals deserve to le- to lose. And uh, maybe I'll just go through the story here of what happened real quick. Sure. 
So uh, three outs for a championship uh, with in game six of the 85 World Series. The Cards are leading the Royals one to nothing. Whitey Herzog is the manager. He calls on Todd Worrell, who's a relief pitcher for the Cardinals. And they have Jack Clark playing first base, who had been um, been an outfielder for most of his career. Um, uh, Jorge Orta, a veteran pinch hitter, uh, chops the ball in the dirt towards third base. Uh, Jack Clark goes over to field the ball. Worrell covers the base. And uh, despite the uh, Denkinger, the first base umpire expected to see a play where um, Clark would uh, sort of reach the ball and then toss it to Worrell in stride. Uh, but instead he, uh, he, he flings it sidearm to the base. Uh, Denkinger is too close uh, to see both Worrell's glove and Orta's foot in his line of vision. So the umpire is supposed to uh, watch the base and listen for the smack of the ball. That's what he does. And he, as soon as he hears the smack, he looks down, um, calls, uh, sees the foot on the bag, calls him safe. And uh, he says later, I, I, bl- I got the call wrong. And I, uh, I blame myself for, for that. Uh, he said, if I had been in better position, it might not have happened. The the Royals uh, then go on to, I, I believe it's a blowout in game seven, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's something like, it might even be like 10 to nothing, something crazy like that. So it's one of those where the team that, 11 to nothing, I was close, geez. Mm-hmm. The team that has the call go against them never recovers, and it's, um, God, what, the Cardinals don't win another world championship until... 20 2006 almost uh almost mm-hmm. uh 20 it's uh, over over 20 years later yeah so they it, I, they kind of imploded a little after the call in game six they let up a uh it's not quite on the level of the 03 the bartman game but jack clark dropped an easy pop out from steve bye bye balboni um daryl porter suffered a pass ball Royals win on a blue base hit. And then the um, obviously the, the blowout in game seven. So Denkinger for years, you know, then, of course, the aftermath of these things. And we talked a little about some of this with the 2003 with Steve Bartman. He gets hate letters. He gets hate mail. He gets death threats Two St. Louis DJs uh, revealed Denkinger's home phone number or home address and telephone number. Which he, uh, I have to say, good. you should go to jail for that. Like if you're you're revealing a guy, I mean, I guess if he's in the phone book, but like if you're a radio DJ and you're broadcasting the, the guy's home address, that's you really should go to jail for that. Yeah, you should definitely be charged. It should definitely be seen as if you're clearly using insightful language to try and get a group of people to commit violence on somebody or something violence or even uh, harassment. Yeah. And that was, yeah, you should, um, you should certainly face the ramifications of that. Like we're not stupid. We know what you were trying to do by saying that. Um, so, you know, I guess in the following years, Denkinger and he got in touch with the FBI when that happened, uh, I guess he did after that appear at, at memorabilia shows and stuff like that, where he would autograph pictures of it. And actually, according to Wikipedia, it said he even owned a painting 
of the play, claiming he keeps it to remind himself that no one is perfect and everybody makes mistakes. He was actually a guest speaker at the 20th anniversary dinner of the 85 St. Louis Cardinals benefiting the Whitey Herzog Foundation. So, you know, look, the guy made a big mistake. He made a big mistake as an umpire in the biggest, you know, moment that is the biggest one of the biggest possible moments. But he also it was an honest mistake. You laid out the mechanics of what he did there. And that kind of thing to me is the example more than anything of, you know, why sports needs instant replay, which is for all the times it delays a game or, you know, when they're looking at, you know, whether to see a guy made a catch or not on a second down with 17 seconds left in the game when it's a blowout and it's enraging. You think dying, you think he, you know, for the rest of his life would have, have, you think he would have been upset if they overturned that call that he was wrong about and he didn't have to live the rest of his life with this crap over his head. Yeah. We wouldn't be talking about him now. So that's one thing he'd lose out on. But other than that, yeah, I think he would definitely, definitely yeah, agree. That's the point of caring at this uh, point. Well, that, um, that's true too. Um, so, you know, Couple a couple just a, a, a just a quick postscripts. He's actually working the plate the following night for Game Seven. Yeah. So you talk about. I'm sure he would have loved to just disappear to right field or something for that World Series game, but he's working the plate and he actually ends up throwing Whitey Herzog out of the game. And there's the, it, it it sort of ends with a dialogue where Herzog says, "If you had gotten that play right last night, we wouldn't have to be here tonight." And Denkinger says, if you guys were hitting more than 122, we wouldn't have to be here tonight. <laughs> so <laughs> I like good for him on that. I like that at, at a banquet honoring the 85 team. I, this may be the, the thing that you're talking about. They invite him. They invite Denkinger to the to the, the banquet and then they give him a gift, a Braille watch. And uh, <laughs> and um, the other thing is that Terry Pendleton says, uh Whitey Herzog said if he had to do it all over again, he would have pulled his entire team off the field and refused to go back on until they got the call right. I, I have some real skepticism about whether that would have actually worked, but uh, who knows? Maybe he would have tried it. Would have it. set a dangerous precedent. <laughs> Herzog also for years blamed Denkinger for keeping him out of the Hall of Fame, although Herzog does eventually get into the Hall of Fame in 2010. Um, so. Something else worth noting there. Um, it, it can be tough to be an official, and uh, I, I have some sympathy for that. And so I think that it's uh, it's important to, to talk about Don Jenkins' whole life and the fact that he seemed to handle the situation with with some sort of grace and good humor about the whole thing. Absolutely. Okay, and uh, we are moving right along. We're going to talk about Jim Brown, who was born in 1936 and passed away on May the 18th. Perhaps the greatest running back of all time. Brown won MVP awards in four of his nine seasons in the NFL and was an eight-time All-Pro and nine-time Pro Bowler. Brown rushed for 12,312 yards in his nine-year career, Highest in league history until Walter Payton broke the record in 1984. Brown led the league in rushing in eight of his nine seasons and won an NFL title with Cleveland in 1964. And we are lucky to have with us uh, for, uh, I think, the third year in a row uh, to speak with us. uh, Sports History Network colleague, uh, 
president of the Professional Football Researchers Association, the PFRA, as well as a lifelong Browns fan. And that is uh, George Bazika. George, thanks for joining us again this year. Sure, Dan. I, I enjoy these every year. We do, too. It's uh, as I've mentioned before, these keep growing every year. I think we're up to, to like nine different people that we've had on as guests this year. Or we'll have on. So this this is really great. So um, in the past couple of years, George, you've, you've come on and, and talked about some folks um, that, that were maybe, you know, so, some really good players, but maybe not all time legends. And you're here with us this year to talk about two real, real all time greats, starting with Jim Brown. So kind of. Why don't you just go ahead and take it wherever you want to take it? What what should we know about Jim Brown? Well, I, I think you said it. I mean, I, I, I've i always – first of all, I want to say Jim Brown's legacy is complicated. Uh, it and, is. And, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But, you know, I for my money, he is the greatest running back that ever played in the NFL. Um, you know, I, I remember him. I was born in 1955, so – I remember him like towards the end of his career. I was just starting to at, at probably age, you know, eight, nine years old. Just remember watching the NFL on TV, especially after the Browns won the championship in 64. Uh, so I remember that. And I and I basically, I think, remember him through the eyes of my dad, because I just remember watching him and thinking, that, you know, this guy is just amazing the way he can not only run over people, but run around people. And he just had that, you know, combination of, of speed, strength, power. I mean, he just had it all. Uh, and I, I think, as I said, that he's the greatest running back of all time. Statistics aside, to me, the statistics don't matter. He, he only played nine seasons, obviously retired, you know, a lot sooner than he should have uh, because he wanted to pursue his movie career. Um you know, he was all set to come to camp in 1966. He played from 57 to 65, but he was shooting the film The Dirty Dozen then. And The Dirty Dozen was running over because of weather delays. So he contacted the Browns and said, hey, I'm going to run late. Art Modell, in probably uh, one of the unwisest moves he made, pushed back on Jim Brown and said, well, we're going to find you if you don't show up. And Jim Brown said, fine, I'm gone. Um, you know, I think Jim Brown would have probably played a couple of years, maybe even got the Browns into another championship game. So, um, you know, a short, shortened career because of that, because he was still obviously physically able, you know, he was dominating. Uh, so those are some of the things I remember about Jim Brown. He's sort of the closest to a Babe Ruth figure, maybe in professional football in that he dominated from his position in a way that nobody really had before and in fact in his rookie year and i haven't examined this in any great detail but nonetheless in his rookie year he leads the browns to the nfl championship game where they lose to detroit leads the league with 942 yards rushing the following year he leads the league again with 1527 yards rushing so almost 600 more but even the 942 in 1957 was enough to lead the league. So this is a guy who really, really was just head and shoulders above anybody else that had ever come before at the position when he came into the league in the late fifties. Yeah. And let's remember too, that in 57 and 58, they were still playing a 12 game season. So Mm -hmm. he was doing this in 12 games. So, I mean, from 57, 58, 59, 60, 
those are all 12 game seasons. And as you said, he gained uh, 942, 1527, 1329, and 1257. Average 104 yards and change per game for his entire career. So he averaged over 100 yards for his entire career, all 118 games he played. And he never missed a game. He was he was a physical specimen. And and not only that, I mean, he was just a great all-around athlete. Some people think he was a greater lacrosse player than he was a football player because he played lacrosse at Syracuse. And some people think he was a better lacrosse player than he was uh, football. And actually, I, I have a bit of an urban legend. There's an urban legend in Canton that when he came to Canton to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, he had not really played much tennis. He started playing tennis that week at a local country club, and by the end of the week, he was beating the pro at that country club. Now, that may be an urban legend, but I remember hearing that as I was growing up, that that's how good of an all-around athlete he was. He was just amazing. Yeah, I I was going to say, there. I think there was a time at which he may, you know, because there wasn't professional lacrosse or anything. There's really not even now. There right. was an argument to be made that he was one of, if not the best lacrosse player in the world right. at one time. It yes. almost reminds me of Ted Williams, where they said, like, there was a point in which Ted Williams may have been the greatest fly fisherman in the world. Right. I mean, who knows yeah. how they quantify yeah. that? But some right. guys are just when they are into something, they, you know, I don't know if he could have played piano at a high level, but like anything athletic. Mm-hmm. or physical, he was going to be one of the best at it once he had a few weeks. So the tennis story may be embellished, but there's probably right. at least some truth to it. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely gifted. There's no question. He was just a gifted athlete all the way around. And you said, you know, a few minutes ago, you said the stats don't tell the whole story, and that's certainly true. Right. But that would almost indicate, oh, the stats aren't maybe, sometimes you look at an athlete in a sport and to the mm-hmm. modern eye, their stats don't look great, whether it's right. passing or whatever. Right. right. He, right. He, even if his stats did tell the whole story, it right. would be incredible. But then when yeah. you factor all the other right. stuff we're talking about in. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think I qualify that by saying there's, there's running backs that have more yards than he does, last and mm-hmm. maybe more years than he does. But the fact that, you know, he averaged, like I said, over 100 yards per game, 5.2 yards a carry, a carry. And just, you know, the fact that he ran, I believe, for, you know, 118 consecutive games without missing a game, seven times over a thousand yards. I mean, it's just it's just amazing in a nine year career what he did. But, yeah, I'm, I'm comparing it to you know guys like Emmett Smith who have you know, much more yardage and stuff. And some people will say, mm-hmm. well, how can you say Jim Brown's the greatest ever? Because some people just look at the the totals and the statistics. So I'm looking at, you know, the body of work. Absolutely. And the way he ran the ball, I, I that there was a quote that I was reading in the athletic as I was preparing for this the other day where he said, and this won't be verbatim, but basically the goal of football is when you're running the ball is to hit a guy so hard that he doesn't want to hit you anymore. And exactly. that was that was his thing. And and really, I mean, there have been other great fullbacks, you know, great at running the ball. Um, you know, Jim Taylor, who was a contemporary and Earl Campbell, you know, a decade or so later, somebody somebody that comes to mind. But that's something else. Most of the other guys that are in that all time greatest running back conversation, Peyton, Barry Sanders, O.J. Simpson, those guys are all. They're halfbacks, but mm-hmm. Jim Brown is a fullback, and th- that meant something in those days, halfback versus mm-hmm. fullback. Right, 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I remember, too, there was an argument that, that uh, and I think he played with it, too. There was I remember a famous Sports Illustrated cover when uh, he was around 50 uh, in a Raiders uniform. And there was talk that he was maybe going to try to come back because some of his yardage records were being broken and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I think he was toying with people at the time. But I think his argument was, hey, I could still do it, you know, because I, I know that I think one of the things was, too, he, I think, came down on running backs that like to run out of bounds. You know, he, he would just take people yeah. off, you know, and, and that was unsavory to him. You know, he was also famous for, you know, making these great runs and then sort of walking slowly to the huddle, you know, to sort of conserve himself, you know, and he, I think he admitted, you know, times that he was hurting, but he was never going to let anybody know that he was hurting either. But, uh, you know, he liked to do that so that he could like, you know, well, people probably thought, oh, you know, he's getting worn out and he wasn't, you know, he would just get back in there and all of a sudden, you know, he just turned it back on. So he was very durable. And he really sort of came along at the right time for the Cleveland Browns, too, because yeah. they had just had this big, huge run of basically 10 years. And Andrew and I uh, actually just uh, just finished up, uh, just posted an episode a few weeks ago on Cleveland sports in 1948, where we talk about the Indians and the Browns. Mm-hmm. And that 48 team uh, was is might be considered the best of that whole dynasty. But that 10 years. But anyway, after 55, Otto Graham retires. There's sort of a little bit of a drift, a little bit of drift in 56 for the first time in their existence. They not only have a losing record, they don't make the playoffs they're not playing for the championship. But then 57, all of a sudden, Jim Brown comes along. They go nine and two. They make it to the championship game. And so and then, you know, they're periodically in the title game for the next decade while Jim Brown's on the team. So he came along at the right time for the franchise also. Yeah, no, no question, because there was uh, obviously our model took over the franchise. There was the, you know, some of the animosity between Brown, uh, Paul Brown and, you know, our model, uh, you know, and, and I think that he did come along at the right time as somebody that, you know, the fans could sort of rally around and, and be sort of the the new hero on the Browns team as that that great team from the late 40s and into the mid 50s you know, basically uh, retired and, and moved on. So this was another team, obviously, eventually Blanton Collier becomes the coach and uh, they really, you know, sort of blossomed with Blanton Collier uh, and they went to, you know, back-to-back championship games in 64, winning against the Colts 27 nothing, which nobody expected at the time because the Colts were heavily favored with a 12-2 and record, Johnny Unitas and that great team. And then in 65, they uh, came up against Lombardi's Packers and, uh, it was the first of, of three consecutive for the Packers. They lost that one. Uh, uh, and that was, you know, with the Packers, with Horning and uh, uh, Taylor, Bart Starr, and that whole group. And uh, eventually the next year, obviously, playing in the uh, the first of the uh, Super Bowls, too, the next season. So, you know, but many feel that if Brown had stuck around, that the Browns would have, you know, won more championships because they were still around. Uh, but, you know, they they lost uh, consecutive championship games in the NFL to uh, – the uh, to uh, the uh, Vikings and the Colts or Colts and Vikings. So uh, uh, never quite made it to the Super Bowl and still waiting for our first Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, you could have seen one of them and you could have seen them in one of those earlier Super Bowls. Yeah. Um, so, Dan, and let me know if this isn't the direction you want to go in. But, you know, we're talking he retires in the you know mid 60s and he's just right. passed away this year. So yeah. that leaves 60 years of life that we should at least touch on. Um, yeah. yeah. Both, yeah. he's you know very 
prolifically involved in the in the civil rights movement. He puts yeah. together something called the Cleveland Summit in 1967, yeah. which includes guys like Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Carl Stokes kind of um, meeting with Muhammad Ali during Ali's uh, issues with the draft. So, okay. you know, th- there's that. And obviously he's seen as a, as a, not to be flippant, but when I was growing up, I knew Jim Brown as the guy with the hat. Cause he would always, yeah, he had the green right. hat on and yes. he was always speaking yeah. on social issues. Right. But then on the flip side, there are also several, whether you want to call them allegations or outright, you know, things that happened of spousal and domestic abuse and things like that, that if we're going to talk about his playing career and some of his positive works, we need to at least mention those in the spirit of fairness. Yeah. yeah I think- no Go ahead, George. Yeah, no question. I mean, he, he, was an activist uh you know he he did a lot for civil rights uh you know he was looking to get uh, you know economic freedom and economic equality for uh for african americans uh, obviously you mentioned the the famous cleveland summit uh where they rallied around muhammad ali you know he was he was not scared to be outspoken and he wasn't scared to tell you what he thought you know he also did a lot of work with uh with gangs in the Los Angeles area, you know, trying to curtail the gang violence. Uh, he founded the uh, Ameri I Can uh, also to work with, you know, underprivileged youth. So, you know, he did a lot of good with civil rights and helping in the community and doing all those things. But as you said, and, and I don't think there was an obituary I saw this year that didn't mention the fact that, you know, if you're going to talk about Jim Brown and you're going to talk about you know, all the stellar things he did on the field, the stellar things he did with civil rights and in the community, you got to talk about the allegations. Uh, you know, uh, I think I saw one say, you know, it was at a time that, you know, those things weren't maybe talked about. Although I think everybody knew, I, I remember, you know, growing up and hearing, well, Jim Brown is alleged again of doing this, uh, you know, to his spouse or to his girlfriend. And you heard those things. And, uh, you know, that was part of the complications of who Jim Brown was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I, I think in any assessment of his legacy, you got to consider those things and you got to take those things into consideration. As some people said, great football player, uh, great mm-hmm. civil rights. But, you know, he also had these uh, sort of black eye on his uh, on his resume. And we haven't actually, you know, we record these in a different order than they end up posting because we record them with folks as they're available. But, um, you know, some some of the people that you've heard before as we're speaking, Andrew and I haven't recorded yet, but not so much on the civil rights side. But there was a very similar somebody else we talked about or, you know, earlier in the episode, uh, even though we haven't recorded yet, is Bobby Hull, who had the same type of thing. Great player, but a lot of a lot of domestic domestic violence issues and and those types of things. But um We, uh, we want to thank you, George, for coming on to, to talk to us about all of it, about the Jim Brown, like you said, one of the great players of all time. Um, and some, you know, uh, talk about both the good and the bad. Uh, George will be back with us uh, in a little bit to talk about somebody else. But um, why don't we take a minute or two, George? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about the PFRA, the Professional Football Researchers Association, and then maybe also a little bit about how that ties in with the Sports History Network? Yeah, I, I've uh, I've been the uh, I've been on the uh, board of the Professional Football Researchers Association for a number of years. I'm currently the uh, president. Um, we are a uh, nationwide organization. Actually, we have membership even in uh, in Europe and outside the country. And basically, uh, we've been in existence for over 40 years. We were founded at the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame 
we basically uh, uh, seek to research pro football history, uh, write about it, disseminate that that research. Uh, we have a, a, our website um, um, in which we uh, have a, a members-only section, which has a uh, just a treasure trove of information about pro football history. Uh, we also have a, a, a magazine that comes out six times a year, The Coffin Corner. Uh, you know, I would I would recommend that anybody that loves pro football, anybody that loves pro football history to join the organization. If you go to our website, you just, you know, Google pro football research association, you're going to find our website, uh, go onto the website and there's a join button there. And, uh, it's the best. I always tell people it's the best $35 you're going to spend. If you love pro football and pro football history. Also, uh, I appreciate you giving the plug too. Uh, about a year ago, we started the official PFRA podcast on the sports history network. Uh, I co-host that with my son, John, who uh, is a sports broadcaster in the uh, Canton area. Uh, and we basically have uh, uh, authors on. We've had former players uh, and uh, former coaches. Uh, just within the past year, we've you know, interviewed uh, 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 Wayne Fonts, who was a Lions coach uh, uh, a number of years ago. And we've also, as I said, interviewed a number of players. Or we also talk about issues. We had an episode where we talked about the whole situation involving uh, DeMar Hamlin. Uh, so we, we try to cover a variety of things. We've, we've posted about one podcast per month right now. We hope to do more as we move forward, but we're really excited about this new project and just another way to disseminate information about pro football history. And we enjoy the podcast and I've been a member of PFRA for a few years now. I've attended a couple of conventions and, uh, and really enjoyed it. Um, and if you're, uh, if you, if you're interested in joining, uh, you know, definitely, definitely check it out. And if you're in the DC Baltimore area and want to join the newest local chapter of the PFRA, uh, get in touch with me somehow because we're just uh we're just getting started and we'd love to have as many members as we can so uh check that out too uh george you'll be back with us but uh thanks so much for joining us to talk about jim brown sure thank you thanks george all right uh next up we have roger craig who was born in 1930 and passed away on june 4th During his long career in baseball, Craig was associated with nine different MLB franchises as a player, manager, or coach. He won World Series rings as a pitcher with the Dodgers in both Brooklyn and Los Angeles, and also with the St. Louis Cardinals in 1964. He also started the first game in New York's Mets history. As a manager, he managed the San Francisco Giants to the World Series in 1989. Should be pointed out, he lost that first game uh, in Mets history, which does not distinguish itself from most of the games of of that era. He was a, a Mets pitcher in the the first two seasons, sixty two and sixty three, at the Polo Grounds. Um, so yeah, he uh, was on a few different you know championship teams, he won championships as a pitcher, as a coach with the eighty four Tigers, and. Uh, three as a player, two with the Dodgers, one with the Cardinals. He also was a manager of a World Series team in 1989 with the Giants that ultimately ended up losing that series in the famous uh, Earthquake Series. The Mets lost their first nine games in 1962 under the great Casey Stengel. Uh, Roger Craig also started and lost the fourth game in Mets history 
uh, on April the 15th uh, by a score of seven to two. So a combined 18 runs for and only or 18 runs against and only six runs for in uh, in Craig's first two starts as a. Excuse me, as a, a New York Met. So he really was just a little bit everywhere in his career. He was um, brought up uh, to the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1955, just in time to win a world championship. He's mentored early on by guys like Carl Erskine, Jackie Robinson, Carl Farillo, gets a world series ring um with the, with the 55 Dodgers I believe wins a game yeah wins a game yep. in that uh in that 55 world series um wins his only start and then moves on with the team to Los Angeles he's on the 59 Dodgers which is sort of this weird in between team that still has some of the guys from the the boys of summer teams, Hodges and Ferrillo and Duke Snyder, still a really good player. And then, you know, pitchers like Padres and Clem Labine. But then he's also, uh, you know, it's also got Koufax and Drysdale as the ace of the staff. And as is Maury Wills, the yeah, a young Maury Wills is on the team. So that 59 Dodger team is sort of a really interesting, um, a really interesting sort of hybrid of the later sixties dominant, the Koufax Drysdale teams and the fifties boys of summer moves on from there to the sixties to Mets who are, you know, just absolutely brutally terrible. But then he ends up on the 64 Cardinals, which is a team that we've talked about quite a bit on this episode, uh, because not only do they have, uh, Tim McCarver as their catcher. They have another um, another person who passed away this year, Dick Grote, as their mm-hmm. starting shortstop. And so Craig is sort of uh, he he pitches in thirty nine games that year, wins nineteen or starts nineteen of them. So he's basically just half a starter and and half a reliever. Wins another championship there, then embarks on this coaching and managing career where he's uh, in a couple more World Series. And he also he gets a win in that 64 World Series in game four. He doesn't start the game, but he comes in and pitches, I guess, the last five innings of the game. The Yankees were up three to nothing. He comes in, pitches the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth. The Cardinals get four runs in the top of the sixth. So Gibson won two games in that series, and then he won one of the other ones, I guess game one was won by Ray Sadecki, mm-hmm. but he does get a uh, get a win in the 64 World Series as well. And then, like you mentioned, he goes into first into coaching. Uh, he's with the Padres, uh, 69 to 72, the Astros, 74 to 75, back with the Padres, 76 to 77. Then he's a manager of the Padres for from 78 to 79 is let go there, spends five years with the Tigers where he's a coach for that 84 team that wins a World Series, one of sort of the dominant like one-year wonder teams. I mean, not that they didn't have good years otherwise, but was there in 84. I'm trying to see what his role was in 84. He was the pitching uh, coach. He was the pitching coach. And then after that became the manager of the uh, Giants from 85 to 92. So that's what, seven years, eight years he was the manager. 
wins the pennant in 89. Obviously, they're swept in that World Series. It's the World Series that's the most famous for there being an earthquake on the field before game three. But, you know, he wins a pennant. So uh, another guy who 30 years, more than 30 years, closer to 40 in Major League Baseball from 1955 to 1992 as a player, as a manager, as a coach. He's on the Brooklyn Dodgers. He's on the original Mets. He's in the, on the field for the 1988-89 the uh, earthquake. Just a guy who's got a lot of, uh, been a lot of places significant in baseball history. He might be best known as a as a coach and a manager, uh, as a pitching coach. He was sort of one of the early pioneers of teaching players the split finger fastball, and he teaches it to Jack Morris in the early '80s. And Morris goes on to win World Series with three different teams: Detroit, Minnesota, and Toronto, and also uh, make it to the World Series or uh, make it to the Hall of Fame eventually. So, yeah, just a guy again. Again, not a. Um, n- not a great pitcher. Yeah, I don't. Was he ever? Was he ever an all star? Let me see if I can. Uh, if I can pull that up. I'm guessing he probably was because in those days it, you get the impression that almost everybody was an all. No, he was never an all star. Never an all star. Just the three world titles. Um, led Who the, the league. Mets all stars have been those years. I think it was like Snyder and Hodges just still being uh, around. Okay, okay. He led the league in losses in both 62 and 63. He won a combined 46 losses. It must have been something for him to go from those teams to a world championship team with Bob Gibson and Lou Brock and all those guys in 64. He must have been the happiest guy in baseball. (laughs) Yeah, totally different worlds at that point. In in 2013, he did an interview with CBS Sports, and he said that... uh, Casey Stengel once said to him, Mr. Craig, I know you pitched nine innings today and won't pitch again for four days, but don't throw between starts just in case we're ahead. I may need you to pitch an inning or two. So it sounds counterintuitive, but you got to be a really good pitcher. To You got to be a I shouldn't say really good. You have to be a solid pitcher to lose 22 games one season and 24 games the following season because you're on a bad team, but they can't find anybody better than you to throw out there. <laughs> The only other thing that I would mention about him before we move on, which is just sort of interesting, is that in San Francisco in the 1980s, there's two oh, Roger Craig's. This used to confuse the hell out of me. When I first started learning, because I think I probably knew about him first before the football one. But yeah, wasn't that kind of confusing as a kid? You know, two Roger Craig's, San Francisco, same time period. Well, and it was also at the era of... Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders. So I don't know for a minute, but maybe I may have thought that it was the same guy. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you don't think about it that close. Mm-hmm. I feel like I saw an interview or an, an article somewhere where like it was like about both of them. It was about how like, you know, like a contemporaneous article. I, I can't find it out right now. But um, Roger Craig, a guy who is a baseball lifer, was around and saw and influenced a lot of interesting things in his in his uh, many decades in the game um should we move on to uh bob brown sure bob brown born in 1941 died on june 16th brown played 10 nfl seasons as an offensive tackle with the eagles rams and raiders he was named first or second team all pro in nine of those 10 seasons During his time with the Raiders from 1971 to 1973, he played alongside three Hall of Famers in Jim Otto, Gene Upshaw, and Art Shell. Brown was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2004. 
another player who had to wait a little while to get into the Hall of Fame. Those Eagles teams of the 60s are sort of kind of purgatory. They were not good. And those are really you sort mean of after the after like the 60 title, you mean like the next for the rest of the decade? Yes. So there's they're six and eight, five and nine. Oh, nine and five and 66. I guess that's not too terrible. And then six and seven and one. And then by 68, they're they're two and 12. And I believe that's Bob Brown's last year on the team. I have to admit, I knew very little about him going in. Uh, I, I kind of knew the name and and not much else. Guy had a heck of a career. He, um, his sort of best years as far as sort of uh, stardom or, you know, at least playing on good teams would definitely have been those last three years playing for John Madden under um, in the uh, in 71, 72 and 73. And th- that you talk about, and I know this was mentioned in the the biography, that's a team with four future Hall of Famers on the starting offensive line. The whole left side of the line was Shell Upshaw and then Jim Otto at center. And then Bob Brown is the right tackle. And then if you really take it even step further in 1971, Bob Brown's <laughs> backup at tackle was another guy, Ron Mix, who was most famous for his years in the AFL in the 60s. So, but so four or five Hall of Fame offensive linemen on the roster of these early 70s Raiders teams. Yeah, so he's he's uh, also just for the record, as I'm looking, only he's only got one of the there's only three retired numbers in University of Nebraska history. I guess they do something a little weird where they retire numbers and then they retire jerseys, but the jerseys are available to be worn. So like. I guess it's just that they probably don't retire numbers anymore, but they still like hang the jersey up in commemoration. But Bob Brown is one of only three guys whose jerseys are retired at University of Nebraska. Tom Novak, a center from the 40s, and then Johnny Rogers from the early 70s are the only three guys with uh, with their numbers retired, which when you think about the history of the University of Nebraska football is uh, is pretty impressive. John Madden said that Brown played offense with a defensive mentality. And that is to say he wasn't hitting you just to try and keep you from tackling the ball carrier, getting to the quarterback, but he was trying to hit you hard to, to hurt you and uh, take you out of the game. Mean Joe green once asked to switch places uh, during a game. This is from uh, from Brown's obituary. He said, uh, um, he want mean Joe green once asked to switch places so that he uh, could go to head to head with, with Brown. He's trying to get it. You know, he wants the challenge. And then green says the next thing he remembers, he was getting up from the turf with one shoe knocked off and his helmet twisted so much that he was looking out the ear hole. It is hard sometimes <laughs> to judge offensive linemen of any era, but especially, you know, sort of the old, you know, older eras. It's hard to judge them because there just are no stats. There's not really any analytics. But when you talk about all-time greats like Joe Green uh, and John Madden giving praise to the guy, that's that's good enough. Yeah, and you know, just the the longevity and the the honors that he was on the nineteen sixty All Decade team. He's in the Eagles uh, 
Hall of Fame. So, you know, I think certainly the, like you said, no real stats to go on, but the sort of praise of his contemporaries places him appropriately pretty high all time. It does. All right, so uh, moving on to our next honoree, we're going to talk about Johnny Lujak, who was born in 1925 and passed away on July 25th. Lujak played three years at quarterback for Notre Dame in the 1940s and won national championships in each of those three years. As a senior in 1947, he won the Heisman Trophy. At the time of his death, he was the oldest living Heisman Trophy winner. He later played four years with the Chicago Bears. And uh, this is somebody that I think that uh, Andrew will be eager to talk about, uh, given the, the tie into some things that he's interested in. Uh, but we also have with us again, uh, you heard him a little earlier uh, about Art McNally. And we once again have uh, Darren Hayes, uh, one of our Sports History Network colleagues, uh, host of the Pigskin Dispatch on the Sports History Network. So, uh, Darren, thanks for joining us. Uh, for somebody else here. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate uh, being able to come on, on again and talk about uh, this gentleman because he is actually from Western Pennsylvania, not too far from where I live uh, in Connellsville, which is sort of a, a distant suburb of, of Pittsburgh. So uh, I'm glad to talk about him. And I'm also a big Notre Dame fan, so I get to talk about a Notre Dame guy as well. So that's that's why he sort of resonates with me. And uh, I, I appreciate being able to talk about Mr. Lujak. So... This guy's got a really interesting career and he's not a pro football hall of famer. Generally speaking, um, we tend to do a lot more pro than college sports here, you know, both for, for football and basketball. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a big three podcast. We, we touch on other things at times, but you know, we, a lot of what we do is the big three, but Johnny Lujak, uh, I, I wanted to talk about him really for, for a few different reasons here. First of all, um, he was the oldest winning, uh, oldest living Heisman Trophy winner when he when he passed away. He had, was uh, uh, almost, uh, I think, 97, 98 years of age. He played a very important role in the Army-Notre Dame uh, rivalry of the mid-1940s. And with, uh, with Andrew being an Army football season ticket holder and with Army football being a topic that we've touched on in the past, I thought that was interesting. And then it's also very interesting just how short his career um, – was in the NFL and why it was so short. So, uh, Darren, as our guest, why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about Johnny Lujak? Well, it's interesting you talk about West Point because Connellsville is a, you know it's a very big town and it wasn't back then either. But he was a he was a big you know star. I think he was three or four sports star at, at his high school, and the whole town was expecting him to go to to uh, West Point. This is right when World War. Uh, two was starting, I believe right around 1939, 1940. So things were heightened and, uh, you know, there's a lot of patriotism going on. And they even went to the state senator, I believe, or the some representative uh, of in the government to try to get him uh, accepted into West Point. And he was, but he had his eye on going to Notre Dame. You know, he was, he just loved the, the program, loved the history of it uh, and uh, really wanted to go there. And Frank Leahy was in his second year as head coach. And Lou Jack uh, later commented on an interview probably about 10, 15 years ago that Leahy didn't have any idea about what the, the T formation was. Because that you know, it was an interesting time. You sit there and think about World War II. 
the whole offensive systems are, are changing because the T formations coming on and the, the single wing and double wing are sort of having their last days. And it's also uh, because of World War II, they started having free substitution at the college level. So single platoon football was starting to morph into you know, dual platoons and uh, that was coming up. So Lou Jack ended up being probably one of the greatest T formation quarterbacks ever in college football. But as a, a underclassman, his freshman and sophomore year, he played behind Angelo Bertelli, who ended up winning the Heisman in 1943, which was the uh, freshman year of uh, Lou Jack. And there's an interesting story um, Lou Jack shared on a, a video I was watching. And he got to go back to Notre Dame sometime probably about 10, 15 years ago and got to go, you know, tour of what the stadium is and see the old stomping grounds. And he told a story that they opened up against Pitt in 1943. And of course, Angel Bertelli was still there. And uh, Leahy went to Bertelli and said, hey, you know, we're going to be playing in Pittsburgh there's going to be a big crowd from Connellsville. That's where this kid Lou Jack comes from. All those people are going to be there. You mind letting him start the game at quarterback? And Bertelli sort of tongue-in-cheek with uh, Lou Jack and earshot. So goes, yeah, coach. He goes, sure, that's fine. If you don't care if you win or lose the game, that's fine. <laughs> so so Lou Jack gets in there and has a, a kind of a pitiful start, and they end up bringing Bertelli in quickly. And Notre Dame ends up winning 41 nothing or something, but it was because of Bertelli, not, not anything that Lou Jack did. But just tells you that the humbleness this guy, he uh, you know, respected his elder Bertelli and uh, really, really honored him and felt great when he uh, won, won the uh, Heisman Trophy that his freshman year. But that 1943 season we're talking about where he started at Pitt, you know, a couple games later, Bertelli gets uh, taken and drafted into the service and gets shipped overseas and Lou Jack becomes a starter all of a sudden after having a, a pitiful game that first game and goes on to have a great season and helps Notre Dame win the national championship uh, with a, a couple great games uh, that he played that uh, really guided them into that spotlight, even though they lost their last game for, of the season. But I think the national championship had already been awarded at that time in that era. So, yeah, Lou Jack's a very interesting guy. And that's one thing I wanted to to mention when you talked about West Point uh, and Notre Dame at that time. Um, obviously, you know he graduates. It looks like in forty one. So you know as we're getting close to the the war breaking out, and you know obviously the, the war had broken out. We just weren't involved in it yet as the U.S. Um, for anybody who may not be aware, sort of with the modern eye, him not wanting to go to West Point actually wasn't that wasn't a way to avoid going to the war. Actually going to West Point would have been a way for him to at least for several years buy him time because for people who don't know, and this is probably not coincidentally why army won national championships in 1944 and 1945. And they claim the 1946 championship, although Notre Dame does as well. And I think Notre Dame's got a stronger case to be honest. Um, if you were at West Point, you were exempt from the draft because you were basically considered already in the military. So he could have done that and at least bought himself several years. So it's not like it was, well, he didn't want to fight. So he went to Notre Dame. And I think as we're about to talk about, um, you know, he was still very much eligible to be drafted, even though he was a star quarterback at Notre Dame. 
Red Blake, who was the longtime coach of Army, actually sort of implies that the reason Lou Jack changed his mind is because of some sort of nefarious, uh, basically accuses wow. him of taking a bribe, which um, mm-hmm. has never been been proven or I, I don't think in any way uh, substantiated. And just on Blake, by the way, just to sort of a nice parallel to that is a lot of people were critical of Blake because he played, I believe, three years at Miami of Ohio and then transferred to West Point for two years in during World War One so that he could essentially a lot of people considered him sort of a I don't know if draft dodger was the word they used then, but that he had gone to West Point to buy himself some more time before having to go into the service. So um, just kind of the interesting parallel there with the two world wars. So Lou Jack, he plays in 43 and then he, he himself is drafted in the military for two years, 44 and 45. And then he comes back and uh, resumes the, uh, the quarterback uh, position at Notre Dame in 1946 leads Notre Dame to uh, yet another national championship. And, but perhaps his biggest play that year is actually not a, not in a win. And it's not a, uh, not a, not an offensive play. It's on defense. He tackles uh, doc Blanchard, who is uh, doc Blanchard, I believe is Mr. Inside, right, Andrew. I always forget this, which one was which. I'll look it up. I, I really never, I never remember which one was which. I, I never remember it either. <laughs> so it's it's Doc Blanchard and uh, Glenn Davis, or Mr. Inside and Mr. Outside. And Doc, I was right. Doc Davis, Blanchard. Bl- Bl- Blanchard is Mr. Inside. Blanchard is Mr. Inside. And this Notre Dame Army uh, rivalry was one of the biggest rivalries in sports in this time period. They played almost every year at Yankee stadium, or they did play every year. They, they, they played every year from uh, with, with one year off for world war two or world war one. I should say they played for every year from 1913 to 1947, basically every game, but the very last game in 1947 is played in New York and mostly at Yankee stadium. And there are a lot of Irish Catholic people in New York city who will never set foot in their whole life in the state of Indiana, but who are these huge Notre Dame fans because they're <laughs> the, the, they're the fighting Irish at the Catholic school. They, they were called subway subway alumni is what they were called. And they were these huge Notre Dame fans who lived in and around New York city. And so this rivalry game was always one of the biggest games of the year. In fact, 20 years earlier, the, the four horsemen of Notre Dame came into being, I believe that was in 1924. Four, 23, 24, I want to say 24, um, 24 during an, an army Notre Dame game. But in this 46 game, which ends up being a zero to zero tie, Lou Jack makes a, a, a score, a touchdown saving tackle on uh, Mr. Inside Doc Blanchard, who's a Heisman Trophy winner in his own right for army saves the game. The, the army Notre Dame 1946 0-0 tie is still considered sort of one of the greatest games in college football history. And so he makes this play, even though he's and Darren, you mentioned free substitution and guys platooning and guys going both ways, even though he's best known as a quarterback, his probably his most famous play as a Notre Dame player is a defensive play tackling Mr. Inside to save the tie in 1946. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And the irony continues because, you know, like you said, he's known as Mr. Inside. If you watch the play, I happened to watch it the other day. He uh, ended up running down the sideline and he's a 220 pound guy is uh, Doc Blanchard. Lou Jack is 180 pounds in his playing days. And you just see this little guy, like almost a safety, I think is what he played, come and hit. Blanchard on the sideline and it looks like David and Goliath. And, uh, it was, he was wide open going down the sideline. If Lujak doesn't make that play, it, it's touchdown army wins the game. And probably we don't even talk about this game anymore, but the, being a zero zero tie just adds to, to that. And the, the irony of Blanchard going to the outside, I think it was another thing that was kind of interesting about the play. So real quick, I just wanted to put a, a button on my brother's, uh, a uh, note about the um, about the Army Navy game. After this game, they could they or about the Army Notre Dame game. Excuse me. After this game, the two schools basically agreed that okay, next year will be it. Uh, we you know we we committed for the forty seven game. That'll be it. And the the joint statement between both schools said that the game had grown to such proportions that it had come to be played under conditions escaping the control of the two colleges, some of which were not to were not conducive to wholesome intercollegiate sport. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Lou Jack goes on the following year uh, to lead army to yet another national champion. He championship, he wins the Heisman trophy first year in three years. And it doesn't go to an army player. It goes to Johnny Lou Jack. They go nine and oh, they get their revenge on army uh, 27 to seven. They beat, uh, USC uh, at the LA Coliseum in the final game of the season, 38 7. And th- this 47 uh, Notre Dame team uh, really is putting up some, uh, putting up some, some really uh, solid numbers here. You know, 40 to 6, 31 to 0, 21 to 0, 27 to 0, 59 6, 38 7. So he goes out on a high note as both a national champion and a Heisman Trophy winner. And then he goes to the Chicago Bears, and that's a very, uh, very interesting situation. <laughs> um, he gets drafted by the Bears uh, by George Hallis, and he s- starts off right off the bat getting into an argument with George Hallis about money, um, where he he says he was promised a $5,000 bonus. Hallis tries to give him less. And really kind of a couple of interesting years for Lou Jack with the Chicago Bears. Yeah, he, uh, was, he, I guess what he ended up his final pay with the bonus and everything all being settled, he made $17,000 as a rookie. And in year four, after all the promises that Hallis made for performance and initiatives and, you know, whatever they would do, they would escalate it every year. He made $20,000. He got a $3,000 raise, which, you know, was kind of made, uh, Blue Jack a little unhappy on there. But he had uh, probably his greatest game as a player as a professional against uh, Joe Ziemba's Chicago Cardinals in 1948 had six touchdown passes mm-hmm. in the game. So that probably made Hallis smile and he, Hallis got his money's worth there just in that one game. But uh, yeah, did, that's really the highlight of his career. I don't think he really had anything else much uh, to, to write home about in the NFL. It's a very- Yeah. And you could point out that the, the two t- uh, other quarterbacks that he's got that I think this is exactly where you were going, Dan. He, uh, I don't think the term quarterback room would have been apt at the time, but it's a, uh, 
quarterback situation with the Bears that's got some uh, some other famous names on it. So in 1940, so what this is about is they've had Sid Luckman as the quarterback of the Bears, great Hall of Fame quarterback for most of the 1940s. But Hallis is looking for a replacement. So in 1948, in his rookie year, Lou Jack joins a team that still has it still has the great Sid Luckman as the incumbent starting quarterback. So Luckman, who's 32, starts seven games. Lou Jack starts three games, and they also get a start from uh, future Hall of Fame quarterback Bobby Lane. So you've got, in addition to last year's Heisman Trophy winner and the legendary Sid Luckman, you've got uh, another future Hall of Famer in Bobby Lane. Well, things get even more interesting the following year in 1949. Bobby Lane has moved on, but and Lujak is the starter. Luckman uh, still at 33 gets into two games. And the third string quarterback is George Blanda, another future Hall of Famer and a guy who ends up playing in the NFL in four different decades. You know, this is a guy who ends up playing for John Madden in the mid 1970s, you know, at 45 <laughs> or whatever he is. So you talk about, like Andrew said, like a really interesting quarterback room. The the Bears, um, Lou Jack really has two years as the full time starter in 48. He, like I said, he kind of alternates with with Sid Luckman. They go ten and two. Uh, they're second in the NFL West. Forty nine. They're nine and three. They're once again second in the NFL West. It's not until nineteen fifty where they finally make a um, make a playoff. And in fact, there's ties in both uh, both the East and the West division of the NFL in nineteen fifty. The Bears tie for first. With the L.A. Rams in uh, 1950, they actually uh, lose to them. Then 14, 24 to 14, they lose to those Rams teams. I- ironically, a Rams team that also had a two Hall of Fame quarterbacks in uh, Waterfield and Van Brocklin. So all sorts of Hall of Fame quarterbacks running around there. Uh, they lose. Um, Lou Jack plays one more year uh, in 1951, and by this time he's. Uh, He's sick of Hallis. He wants out and ends up uh, not just leaving their team, but retiring after the 1951 season. Yeah, something else that happened in there, too, that was kind of, I think, from what I understand, this kind of pissed Hallis off, too, is he ended up, uh, Lujak ended up having a radio show mm-hmm. uh, called, called The Adventures of Johnny Lujak. And it became, it was kind of popular in the, the year 1949 and I got pretty good ratings and everything. And I think he probably made a couple coins off of that as well. And, uh, you know, just, it's just kind of interesting that his popularity and basically from probably his Notre Dame days is what propelled that, that radio thing, probably not from being the, the Chicago bears player that he was. So. And he really sort of identifies as a Notre Dame alumni rather than a Bears alumni for the rest of his career. He goes back to Notre Dame, works there as an assistant and kind of works with the players for a while, um, including um, uh, including uh, including Paul Horning uh, in, in the early to mid 1950s and another Heisman Trophy winner. He refuses to attend any Bears alumni events for the rest of his life, which is, you know, 70 some odd years after he leaves the team. So he certainly uh, knew how to stick with it and uh, 
kind of a what would have been right. You know, he the guy who very well could have been a, a pro football Hall of Famer in addition to a, a college grade if, if things hadn't been quite so stubborn between him and uh, the great George Hallis. Yeah, and I think he went to Notre Dame with the idea that he might be able to take over as the head man. But instead, after Leahy steps down, it went to Terry Brennan. So Lou Jack basically leaves football. I did find an interesting thing, Dan, and I don't know if you knew about this. He was the um, from 1958 to 1961. He did uh, Giants. He was the color commentator for the Giants on CBS. Um, but. What he had done in the after he left Notre Dame was he became a uh, he owned a Chevrolet dealership, and in 1962 Ford signed on as a sponsor uh, for the CBS Giants broadcast. I didn't see this, and no. and they replaced him because they knew he was sort of a you know high profile or you know relatively high profile Chevy guy. So they replaced him with Pat Summerall, and that was sort of the start of Pat Summerall's broadcasting career. Just, I did not know that. Interesting. Yeah, Notre Dame means the school still still loved him. When I talked about that visit he did in 2015, you know, he's well into his 90s at that time or just about to turn 90. He goes there and he goes to, uh, you know, as he's touring a school, school he goes to his old uh, dormitory and he goes, finds his old room that the school had turned into a lounge uh, for that dorm and names it the Lou Jack lounge for the, the kids to go there and hang out and mm-hmm. stuff. So his dorm is still revered at Notre Dame. Well, uh, Darren, uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about uh, first Art, Art McNally earlier and then, and then Johnny Lou Jack. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, about what you do for the Sports History Network, uh, your podcast? You do a couple different things for for the network, actually, for those who may not be familiar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the main thing I do that people know me for is Pigskin Dispatch and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, the pigskindispatch.com website. Uh, also run the uh, Sports Jersey Dispatch podcast where we talk about not only football, but the, the four major sports and talk about it in the light of honoring the players through their Jersey numbers, uh, on that site. Uh, also, uh, I co-produced and write, wrote the uh, Orville Mulligan sports writer with, with Oz Davis. And, uh, that's an audio drama here on sports history network. And, uh, I, I dabble a little bit of everything and, uh, I just became a, a published author recently. And, uh, I'm, I'm proud about that, uh, of a ancient football team that, uh, from my area. Yeah. T- tell us a little bit about the, uh, 1903 Franklin all-stars. Yeah, the, the book's titled "The World's Greatest Pro Gridiron Team," and it's a you know pretty strong statement. But what I've done is this team is probably about forty or fifty miles from me. The city is, I'm sorry. Uh, the team played 1903, and most people from Franklin, Pennsylvania, don't even know, much like I didn't know, that Franklin ever had a professional team because it's a very small city, and uh, it, it's you know it comes out of oil money back at the turn of the last century and uh, from a rivalry with a, a nearby town and uh they end up really what the newspaper called them the world's greatest team i think there's some merit to them being the world's greatest team ever in professional football and that's sort of what the book premise is about and uh we'd, we'd love to have you on uh sometime next year to talk about it so um Darren, uh, good luck with the book. Uh, always enjoy your podcast. And uh, for the fourth year in a row, just want to thank you for coming on and uh, being part of our Hello Old Sports in Memoriam special. Guys, it was my pleasure, and I, I appreciate it, and I hope I get invited again. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks, Darren. Darren.
Hi, everybody. Dan again. That's the end of part two of our In Memoriam special for 2023. It's fitting because Darren kicked us off for episode one with Art McNally, and he closes us out with Johnny Lujak for part two. I'd also like to thank Harv, Oz, Dana, and George for their contributions to this episode. We'll be back in a few weeks with the final episode of our 2023 In Memoriam special. Goodbye, old sports. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.